He wore a dark cutaway suit. He was about 5'7", foreign-looking, dark hair, uh, and he gave the appearance of being shabby genteel, and then he wore that ghastly deerstalker hat. He was seen only twice, and that was with the actual victim just before it must have happened. These killings occurred within minutes of cops coming and going with people, and there suddenly there's a body that's been eviscerated, and there's no noise, nothing, no clue. Well, there's lots of clues, but there's no, no clue that could ever be followed. And that is what then held all of London for all of October and November, the Autumn of Fear, as it was later called. That is what held London under the spell of terror that Jack the Ripper could not be stopped. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. On this installment of the program, my friends, we have an absolute barn burner of an episode for you as we tread into some unfamiliar territory. Finally, venturing into the world of true crime, specifically the mysterious and infamous Jack the Ripper. However, while the topic is unfamiliar, the guest is quite familiar, as we welcome back to the program acclaimed investigative historian Gian Kassar, who returns to BOA Audio for an in-depth discussion on his latest book, Scarlet Autumn, The Crimes and Seasons, of Jack the Ripper. Before I even preview the episode, I have got to put over this book. It is tremendous, my friends. Unlike so many other books on Jack the Ripper, Gian does not come into this with his own suspect and then tailor the story to fit his suspect and make you believe that he is correct. On the contrary, Gian turned to the historical record looked back at the coroner's inquests of the Jack the Ripper victims and provides a wealth of first-hand information that was reported by the police and witnesses at the very time of the Jack the Ripper slayings, providing some tremendous information and some real insights into what we actually know about the Jack the Ripper killings. Over the course of this comprehensive conversation, we are going to retrace the events of those Ripper slayings, looking specifically at the killer's canonical five victims. And we'll learn about the clues from the crimes that were uncovered by investigators of the era, but seem to have been forgotten as time has passed. You're going to hear about characters like Wynne Baxter. You're going to learn about tangential events that may be connected like the Torso Killer, who was running amok at the same time as Jack the Ripper, and we're going to look at why some of the most famous Jack the Ripper suspects just do not fit the actual information that we know about what happened at the time. Altogether, this is an episode that will provide listeners with a far better understanding of what really happened during that terrifying autumn in London of 1888, 
as we strip away the mythology of the case and focus on the facts rather than the fiction surrounding the infamous Ripper killings with the incomparable Gian Kassar. For those folks who are unfamiliar with Gian Kassar, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Gian Kassar has achieved public acclaim for living a real X-Files life and has been called the real-life Kolchak. Instead of pursuing the world of the unknown, unseen, mysterious, and macabre with the extemporanea of popular journalism, he has applied the keen surgical tools used in history, coining the term investigative historian. Yet his writings are not those of the academician. They are the result of a serious investigator, out to find the truth behind the world's unsolved mysteries and historical riddles. One of his books, They Flew Into Oblivion, inspired a congressional resolution. He has been the guest on hundreds of radio shows and the subject of over 30 documentaries on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Travel Channel, NBC, Sci-Fi, Fox, TLC, BBC, National Geographic Explorer, and many others. He is a native of California and still resides there. His website is www.bermuda-triangle.org. Pretty simple, just do not forget the hyphen, bermuda-triangle.org. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 6th, 2014, Gian Kassar, talking about Scarlet Autumn, the crimes and seasons of Jack the Ripper, on BOA Audio, Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio, Season 8. Sit tight, my friends, because we are going to have an amazing conversation for you on this edition of the program. I am just completely blown away by our guest's book. You've heard him on the program before, of course, but this time around he's got something all new, and it is a tour de force, my friends. It is just tremendous stuff. Talking about the amazing Gian Kassar. He was on previously to talk about the Bermuda Triangle and his awesome book, They Flew Into Oblivion. Then a couple of years later he came back to talk about recasting Bigfoot, which was this just mind-blowing book that he wrote looking at the uh, Bigfoot phenomena. And just I, I was looking back today as I was marveling at the new book, and I remembered how blown away I was by recasting Bigfoot as well. So as you can tell, I'm going to be very excited about this program. And the new book is titled Scarlet Autumn, The Crimes and Seasons of Jack the Ripper. And I like to time these conversations and read the books as I get closer to talking to the guests and sat down the last couple of days and could not put this book down. It is it's thrilling, folks. It really is a tour de force, as I said. It is a masterpiece. I'm, I'm completely blown away by this book. And I didn't know anything about the Jack the Ripper story before I sat down and started reading Scarlet Autumn. But after I was done with it, I could tell you all kinds of amazing just facts about this case that I'd never even known completely blew me away and and had me just enraptured with this case and this story. So kudos to you, sir. Congrats on this. Welcome back to the program, Gian Kassar. I cannot wait to dig into Scarlet Autumn with you. Well, thank you for having me again. 
Now, it's been a couple of years since we had you on the show, Gian, so I guess let's catch people up to speed a little bit. Who is Gian Kassar? Tell us about your background and how you got really mixed up in looking at all these weird mysteries. I don't know. <laughs> uh, by training, I'm a historian, which basically qualifies you for the unemployment line. <laughs> and so uh, I channeled it to my historical, uh, you know, research to my interest in mysteries, unexplained mysteries. And uh, I've always fancied myself like everybody else from my generation. We grew up in the 1970s with all these mysteries being shown us all the time, but uh, they were never solved from Bigfoot to Bermuda Triangle to UFOs to all this interest in the great villains of history who went uncaptured. And I just started investigating in the 1990s, so I guess 24 years now. And I put up the website in 1999 on the Bermuda Triangle when I saw all the, the old uh, obsolete information that was up. And so that's what I originally became identified with, although that was only one aspect of what I uh, researched. And so when someone, I forget what it was, I think maybe you might have put her on to me, a, a news reporter uh, called me the real-life Kolchak. I thought that was a compliment. <laughs> so I mentioned that because, it, you know, it's just whatever the mystery is that I'm interested in, I will investigate it from something as carnival as Bigfoot to something as <clears throat> respectable, quote-unquote, as the true crime uh, incidents like Jack the Ripper or the Cleveland Torso Killer or the Zodiac Killer or Amelia Earhart's disappearance. The investigative method applies to everything. It's just a question of being very careful and being very sincere in doing your research. Yeah, you, I gotta give you kudos in a big way too. You could have sat on the Bermuda Triangle thing and just been the Bermuda Triangle guy for the rest of your life and probably done pretty well for yourself, but that you cast off into, uh, like we said, uh, the Bigfoot realm and then this Jack the Ripper stuff and, and each time you put something new out, it's amazing. Uh, so I, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do. There must be some sort of like seed, some sort of impetus that led you to the Ripper story. So what was it really that made you decide, you know, after recasting Bigfoot, this is the next direction I'm going to go. This is what I really want to look at next. It's the mystery. It is the intentional mystery that he created. Uh, the victims were means to several ends. And the location in which he did it in the east end of London, which was far different back then than today with all the streets crowded. They're, they're very narrow streets even to this day, but all the buildings shoulder to shoulder, a dank alleyway here and there only occasionally. And the fact that he could do what he did on the streets uh, in a side yard or something in pitch darkness in the span of a few minutes before someone came along was remarkable. This is not someone seizing the opportunity. This was someone who knew his ground and very carefully planned the mystery. And so that he he played a game. He dangled a carrot before all of us. And I'm just one in a long line who decided to chase after it to try and discover who this guy really was. Yeah, you hit on some of the things that really stood out that made me marvel at the case. The stealthiness of it all, the timing, the remarkable vision that was, must have been required to do this stuff. And, 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 and you sort of in, intimated here that it, that it seems like it was almost a, a, like an intentional puzzle that was created, which makes it even, as a whole other layer of, <laughs> of mystery well, to it. Yeah, it, it covers his trail as well. And when we understand what his actual image was, which is far more interesting than the uh, top-hatted gent with the cape of legend. 
And it is certainly far more interesting than in the last 30 years, this rather undeserved image of the low-class Polish Jew that cropped up and because uh, of irony replaced the original image, which was, I said, you know, some Simon Peer or a doctor in a top hat. He would have stood out like a herring on a cupcake had he looked like that in the low-class East End. But in reality, he did stand out. He wore that uncouth deerstalker hat. Really, if you picture Sherlock Holmes, that's what Jack the Ripper looked like, because he wore a deerstalker hat, which is what Sherlock Holmes wore. He wore a dark cutaway suit. He was about 5'7", a dark, foreign-looking, dark hair, uh, and he gave the appearance of being shabby genteel, and then he wore that that ghastly deerstalker hat, which is a country gentleman's hat. It would not have been worn in the city. We don't realize that today, because we've seen all the Sherlock Holmes uh movies or whatever, and Conan Doyle never described Sherlock Holmes wearing that hat. It was purely a country hat. The equivalent today would be someone walking around the street wearing some Elmer Fudd hunting hat. Well, we'd notice him right away. Yeah. But the Ripper uh, dressed dark in order to blend in with the nightlife of Whitechapel, but then he wore that that hat indicating he was stalking his game. And when you realize that is his image, you realize that he went out of the way to stand out in one respect. Then he's so adroitly transposed into the night, no one ever reported seeing such a person like that walking casually away or to a scene. He was seen only twice, and that was with the actual victim just before it must have happened. Spooky stuff. The whole that, it, it, I know it happened over 100 years ago, but I was still kind of look, <laughs> looking over my shoulder after I'd read the book. Uh, it, well, yeah, it, he is the quintessential stalker. Yeah, he must have had a very innocent-looking veneer, but he had a very diabolical intent. Mm. Now, paint a picture here. Bring us, the listeners, uh, back, because I love this part of the book. Uh, As I said, I learned so much, not just about the the case, but history in general, really, uh, as well. I guess take us back to 1888, that East End part of London. You really describe it vividly in the book, uh, just sort of this, this... Hellhole, this uh, just 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 armpit of the planet, this horrifying place. Paint that picture for folks. Give an idea of what what you know the setting of all this, because that that plays a critical part of it of it all. I think. Yeah, it was the valve by which immigration came into London and therefore into Britain from the docks of the Thames nearby. It was also paradoxically the point to which uh, workers, laborers throughout Britain, focused into London because this is where all the industry was going up. The new industrial revolution, it was not going to go up into the luxurious West End. It went into the East End. So here you have this paradox. You have what was a very grimy industrial part of the city. Brick everywhere. Everything was the new utilitarian brick. Victorians loved brick. They did not like the old varnished beams and plaster whitewash of Georgian London. They started bringing that down. So here you have this street after street of dark cobblestones of brick, of coal-stained brick buildings, workhouses everywhere, chimneys belching out the new industrial waste, coal dust, coal dust all over the buildings. Rain would then turn that into streaks, and it would look very mournful, like the buildings were crying. You have, uh, at nighttime, the Thames fog mixed with all this ghastly coal dust, and the, the sky, which did turn it into this Red would probably be too stark a color, but it was a very dirty inferno look, uh, like a, looking at the sunset after a volcano in the distance has erupted. That's the 
the color of night and the smog Ugh. that hung over Whitechapel. So here are these people walking along in all this coal-staining <coughs> environment. They're poor. Uh, tens and tens of thousands are foreigners who immigrated. Uh, 20,000 at least were thought to be prostitutes, but London did not like to mention that word. It took forever for the papers to finally broach what the victims were really like. They were unfortunates. That's what they were first called. They're fallen sparrows. They live, uh, you know, an, an unstable life. They didn't want to say prostitutes. The papers wanted to build this up into revealing all the social and economic problems in London. And if they had said that these were prostitutes, probably the majority of moral Victorians would not be as sympathetic, and certainly they wouldn't be as scared. Uh, the newspapers built this up and nobody is safe. Mm. And the uh, later the director of uh, the criminal investigation, which was Robert Anderson, said that your average housewife was never in danger. They knew what type of victims the Ripper picked on, and he picked on where he's going to find them, because this is where they were congregated in the East End. This was the center of vice for London. West End gents would go to certain higher-end houses in the East, but the the Ripper's victims were, were the vagrants, were those who spent a few pennies a night to get a bed in a DOS house, and by real definition, they probably were not prostitutes. They they just did whatever they could to survive. And uh, it's not like they were organized into brothels or anything. These were the dregs. These were toothless hags basically winking over dirty smiles with coal stains on their face. These were nothing desirable. What he thought was expendable. These are the victims of a haughty mind who were very, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't say easy to get at because he struck in such dangerous territory. But he, he got uh, the vagrants who were out there or, you know, working the night trade late on. And that was easy killings for him. Yeah, that was one of the things I picked up from the from the book. It's remarkable the well you say early in the in the in the whole uh in the whole piece, uh, you say that the greatest hindrance to solving the crimes is their own popularity and you point out throughout the book sort of how things have changed over time and the in the depiction of it all and the and you hit the nail on the head with the prostitutes. I was surprised that uh they they weren't Julia Roberts here. They were uh, quite, no, they were quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah, they, they were dregs. Now, this was someone who very consciously chose what he could get in the dark of night. Uh, they were certainly nothing that would be considered any stimulating quest. He never sexually abused them. The Ripper did not. He might have solicited them in order to get them off guard, but then he killed them like a humane butcher. He was quick, you know, to do his business. He would cut their throats quickly, and he would start the process of fetching what he wanted. And then he would just leave the bodies there. It was, uh, yeah, get, get the hell out of there as fast. <laughs> it's amazing how he gets away so fast. Um, and one of the other things that struck me, again, to sort of paint the picture of what we're dealing with in all this, is uh, the sort of, I guess you could call it almost the quaintness of, of the criminal investigation. I mean, uh, or, or at least uh, compared to what we have today. I was surprised that... The we're jumping ahead in the story a bit here, but it's I guess only cognizant really to this point uh, that the, the the Mary Kelly murder was the only one where they had any photos of the body, and I was just really surprised that uh, you know when they had the graffiti, the guy was going to go and get the camera, 
And I thought oh, to myself, was, yeah. why, why, where, where the hell have they been this whole time with these cameras? Why aren't they taking pictures of uh, a lot more stuff? So I was surprised by that. This was really uh, quite a different way of life as far as getting to the bottom of these mysteries. And there was some contention between the Met, Scotland Yard, which is the greater London police, and then City of London is itself. London grew from the City of London. That's just a square mile within London where all these the ancient edifices are, the Tower of London, the, the bank, and uh, these places. But they have their own independent police force to this day. And because uh, <clears throat> of that contention, one victim was killed in the City of London, and that's the one that afterward the Ripper wrote on the doorpost, the Jews are not the men that will be blamed for nothing, something to that effect. And that's when City of London detectives wanted that, Detective Daniel Holtz actually wanted that photographed. And the Ripper, although he killed within City of London, he fled back into the Metropolitan District in Whitechapel. And so Sir Charles Warren came himself and said, no, he didn't want to riot. And so he had it rubbed out before it was light enough to take a picture. And I think that's probably why uh, Major Smith, who was in charge at the time of City of London Police, said, you know, we're, we're bringing cameras down to Mary Kelly's murder no matter what. Get pictures of this. Hmm. So that was the first time. That was, I think, that pictures have ever been taken of a crime scene. But you have to understand, with any serial killing, even today, the police are always at a disadvantage with the first uh, or even second victims because they don't know this is going to turn into a serial killing. Right. They have to first assume this is a random something a little more prosaic that the person knew their attacker. And back then, that was the standard mentality. Although uh, London actually was quite uh, London police realized once they had a serial killer that he didn't know his victims. He just went around stalking the, the drabs of the East End. You have uh, American police as late as the Torso killings in the 1930s in Cleveland who still went through the old routine that victims must have known their killer personally. And so London actually was a bit advanced for the time. They accepted this was just a, they believed it was a madman on the loose just trying to kill women for whatever motive he had. Yeah, well, it was interesting in some of the accounts of, of the time. They just, they, they call people lunatics. It's like, <laughs> a lot of people are labeled as lunatics. It was surprising how many, uh, people were shipped off to places or <laughs> unsettling in a way. Well, yeah, that was the, the mentality. I think a lot of people still have that, that evil and does not exist. That if someone does something like this, they have to be crazy. In reality, people can be evil, very sane and very intelligent. Mm. They're just very evil people. But back then, someone who went and did this had to be a madman. And I don't think, from what I've read about all the all the police and their disagreements with each other, I don't think they really saw how a careful and methodical the Ripper really was. They preferred to picture this guy just on a bloodlust at night, when in fact he was extremely premeditative and very careful. Robert Anderson didn't even notice the clear uh, inspiration the Ripper took from the newspaper, from the Star in particular, and started trying to use the killings to incite anti-Jewish riot in the East End. Hmm. He never picked up on that. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this whole story. It's uh, it's amazing. I'm going to try and keep it kind of chronological. I hope that works for you. We'll sort of work our way through uh, the story. That's always best for my memory. There you go. And I can assure you folks, no matter how specific we get here in this, (laughs) 
in this conversation. We may we may touch on something called the Swanson marginalia, but I can tell you, pick up this book because afterwards you'll know a whole lot more about the Swanson marginalia than we'll even be able to get into here on the show. So this is how serious uh, I'm talking about this book. It's outstanding. I'm going to just hit on stuff that stood out to me about some specific instances, but I want you to obviously feel free to flesh this out and bring people up to speed on kind of what we're talking about. But you point out that I feel like this all kicked off, and obviously there's a big debate regarding uh, the Tabram murder, which some presumed was the first Ripper murder, and nowadays it seems like it's not, it's debated. But it, it certainly kicked off the mania of it all. And you point out that the press saw it as a cash cow with many calves and used it to advance all these agendas, uh, sort of uh, circling up about what we've already talked about, how, how bad things were for the folks in the in the East End. So I guess talk a little bit about that and, and sort of set the stage here for uh, what's about to go down with the Ripper. Yeah, Tabram's murder was in August, early August, I think the 7th, on a bank holiday. She was a fat, middle-aged, 39-year-old, quasi-prostitute who was out having drinks with a couple of the, the guardsmen and she went off on her own route uh, when her and her friend Pearlie Paul divided and there is no record of where she went after that and then finally uh, a few hours later her body is found on the first floor landing of a crowded tenement house and she had been brutally stabbed uh, 39 times her hands were clenched in death, fingers clenched. So she had dug her hands into somebody. Uh, the bosom area of her dress had been ripped off. The landing, of course, then she, it was obviously a struggle. The back of her skull had been slightly bruised. And what excited the press and the police and everything was the fact that this happened in a crowded tenement on the first floor landing, which be, it would be second floor in our parlance. So this was the landing going up to the second floor in this tenement house, and she died 12 feet away from the the uh, manager of the tenement house's flat. The door was closed, and they slept about 12 feet away on the other side, and no one heard anything. And it was the mystery, not just the macabre setting, not just a body found in a pool of blood and no trace from it. It was the setting that excited London. How could someone be murdered so violently, who was obviously conscious at the time in order to dig her hands into the assailant, and yet no one heard a thing. Uh. She was found only casually by one of the uh, boarders walking downstairs to go to work around, I don't know, 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. So Tabram, Martha Tabram's murder was finally written off as that of Either a high-rip gang is what they were called. They blackmailed prostitutes, sharing some of their earnings with them. If not, they'd rip them to pieces. That's where they got their name. And so, uh, but she was written off as something like that, that a gang must have gotten her. But then, uh, at the end of August, it all changed. Uh, Now, that was in a a George Yard in Whitechapel. About three-quarters of a mile away, if if even that, in, in Bucks Row, this is when they find, in the early morning, the cop on the beat finds yet another body. That would be Polly Nichols. <clears throat> She's laying right on the cement, one arm outstretched, almost touching the gate. This is in the butcher yard area, industrial area of Whitechapel. Her throat is cut deeply. 
there's only a small pool of blood by her left shoulder. And so this is now regarded universally as the Ripper's first killing. Her throat was cut. Martha Tabram's throat was not cut. But Polly Nichols' throat is cut. She was stopped dead right on the street, and there was no trace. And this was three cops patrolled Bucks Row back and forth around on uh, their methodical 30-minute beats. And so the body was brought there, they thought, because there was no trace of blood, and dumped there, but then they realized there were no wagon tracks. None of all the, the bobbies heard anything, and this was early in the morning, 3.30, and so they would have heard uh, wagons clunking along, horse, horses trotting along. It was realized that she was killed right there. Her body is taken to the morgue only there when the detective raises her dress as he realized that her lower abdomen has been mutilated. None of the cops at the scene noticed that because there was such little blood. There, there was very little blood even on her underlinen, and yet there was only just a little puddle of blood by her left shoulder. Now, sadly, some, although the inquest accepted that this was a mystery, some have tried to explain this, that she was on a sidewalk that was so inclined it just all flowed down her back. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, her clothes is described. It was blood was only around her neck. Well, that's and shoulders. Uh, let me jump in here because that's in my notes here. This is the question I have for you because I couldn't quite wrap my mind around it. I kept sort of double, I kept second guessing myself, like maybe I'm confused uh, by what went down here. But are you suggesting that the the Ripper just took somehow extracted the blood from her body? That would have to be the only explanation because of the lack of blood. How, suit that. how would you do that? I'm just I, That's what I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I would think it would take three hands to do that. I explore that in the possibility that there was conspiracy, that there was more than one guy involved. Hmm. But taking chronologically, as they looked at it, this is what faced them on a public street. And this was definitely the Ripper's doing. And the mutilations in her lower abdomen and is what eventually caused the police to overlook the lack of blood because a week later... Uh, another prostitute was killed, and this in a backyard in dawn light. This was Annie Chapman, and she was just laid open with a knife. There was no pointless cuts. Her viscera was ripped open, and her uterus was taken with the navel still attached. And that is what caused the inquest that was still sitting on Polly Nichols' case. It caused the coroner, uh, Wynne Baxter, to believe that she was, in fact, that the ripper, not yet known as Jack the Ripper, the killer, wanted to do the same thing with Polly Nichols, but had been interrupted by some men walking along going to work. Huh. And so that made them gloss over the fact that Polly Nichols really did not even have sufficient blood at the scene, just a small puddle. The doctor described it as a wine glass to wine glass and a half full of blood by her shoulder, and that's all she had. No one seemed to stop at the, at the remarkable nature of how the blood was gone? Well, they did at the time, yeah, at the inquest. But then, as I said, uh, that seemed to have been so overshadowed huh. by which was the most sensational killing that the Ripper ever did. Right. And that was the neat dissection of Annie Chapman. Okay. And then the removal of her uterus. And so Polly Nichols was kind of forgotten. Okay. Both of them had their throats cut. But Polly Nichols, really, her lower abdomen, the doctor described it in detail, was only mutilated. There was really no attempt to open her up. Her stays, her girdle, was still on. It had only been loosened, and the mutilations were only at the navel and below. 
Whereas in Annie Chapman's case, it was everything was ripped out of the way, and her whole torso was neatly sliced open. And so that dominated the entire investigation thereafter. That convinced Baxter Phillips, the police surgeon, that the killer was a mortician or a butcher. And when Baxter believed he was a mortician or possibly even a doctor, and that gave us the image that's still with us today, that Jack the Ripper was a very educated man and possibly a doctor, because Annie Chapman's gutting was so professional. Mm. Mm. But there was, there was, she was in a pool of blood, so there was no attempt to take any blood. Right. And, uh, and then of course the killing that then happened later, the next one would have been Liz Stride, which was at the end of September, uh, September 30th, same day as the other one. Right, that's the double, double event. event. <laughs> yes. And so in Liz Stride's case, in the darkness, she was, uh, her throat was cut, but nothing else happened. And apparently, uh, they believe the Ripper was interrupted there. And then later, uh, about an hour later, that's when Catherine Eddowes is butchered in the city of London. And it looked like a maniac went at her in Mitre Square. And it was then that the letter was received and the person at the time, they thought this could be a legitimate letter from the killer, and that's when he called himself Jack the Ripper. Okay. And that is what then held all of London for all of October and November, the Autumn of Fear, as it was later called. That is what held London under the spell of terror that Jack the Ripper could not be stopped. Because then in November, early November 9, he uh, killed Mary Kelly in her little apartment. And he did the same thing there. He This is where he completely dissected her, eviscerated her, and just it was a horrid mutilation. And those are the five accepted canonical murders, they're called, uh -huh. that Jack the Ripper definitely did. And he left the room, made sure the door was locked again so she'd be found in a locked room, and walked quietly away without leaving a trace, not a drop of blood on the floor, not a drop of blood on the doorknob, despite the, the gore that they found inside. So these were mystery murders, and those are the five that make up the canon of Jack the Ripper's victims to this day, although there were more that occurred at the time. For two years, London thought they were suffering under the effects of Jack the Ripper, but time has eliminated the other victims as the result of the London torso killer, who was thought to be somebody else, or an imitator. But with time, these five, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Liz Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly are considered his five victims. So you discount the later cases like the McKenzie one and the, uh, I think it was Casey or something like that, right? I don't really discount the McKenzie one. It's hard to figure it out. Uh, her her murder was so, I glossed over the entire details. One thing all these murders are connected with, despite uh, certain differences, they all occurred without they're all called mystery. The, the mystery was the ultimate purpose of the killer, to leave them here on the street or in bed without any sign of how he went about killing them and uh, and getting cleanly away. So that was the great mystery of Jack the Ripper, how he silently stalked his ground, struck, and then disappeared. That You find that in the Alice McKenzie murder as well, and that the killer killed her within five-minute time between two bobbies walking back and forth in that alley where she was found, and that was the Ripper style. Even though her throat was not completely cut, it was stabbed, or a four-inch stab in it, uh, 
Her mutilations in her abdomen were very light. There was the imprint from a strong hand holding her, which was also characteristic of the Ripper. He left fingernail abrasions under their ear when he held their mouth so tight. When he cut their throat, there were bruises on either side of their cheeks, matching his thumb and fingers as he held them that tight when cutting their throat. So those are all uh, similar to a number of these cases. Whoever killed all these 12 prostitutes over the two years in Whitechapel did in fact have an incredibly strong grip, must have had very good night vision, knew the area very well, and came and went very quietly. Hmm. I think it's and struck only oh. prostitutes. Right, right. Now, I think it's important to revisit uh, what you mentioned here about how he earned his name, because it seems remarkable. It seems like uh, interesting that it's pretty likely, and maybe you can explain this or, or clear it up for me if you think I'm wrong, but it seems pretty likely that the whole Jack the Ripper name was a creation of, of the press, because it turned out that well, the, the, one of the major purported letters from Jack the Ripper they're almost certain came from one of the newspapers themselves. So do you think that Jack the Ripper name really just was all part of the whole scheme that was cooked up by these newspaper folks to uh, sort of become a part of the story, if you will? You know, I think it's, you know, it was just a sensational name they gave. That makes the Ripper a little more mysterious. He never communicated openly. He didn't send letters bragging in uh, a poor cockney dialect using the American word boss, the dear boss letters they're called. He was something, somebody who communicated only by the gore of his crimes, by the careful staging of his crimes, by his attempt to incite riot from his crimes to upheave, cause upheaval. Mm. But I think uh, Harry Dam and Fred Best were the ones who concocted Jack the Ripper. It ultimately was based on the idea of a high rip gang uh, who went around uh, blackmailing prostitutes. And so then this individual, you know, Jack was just the overall guy back then. Mm. So it was Jack the Ripper. And yeah, and it's funny cuz people I think people generally believe that he was writing these letters to the to the newspapers like uh, at the time, be, yes. I think even today though if you stop somebody on this, you know, cuz like oh, yes. before, yeah, before I read the book, uh I, I think I always had the the misconception that that happened maybe cuz I entangled it with the Zodiac case so much. Yeah, no, the Zodiac wrote his letters, but mm. no the Ripper uh they thought at the time he uh, did this during the autumn. They put up facsimiles of these on posts and in windows and everything, seeing if anybody could recognize the handwriting. So that's what really created him as Jack the Ripper when people were walking along Whitechapel or all of London, not only seeing these handbills wanted, the Whitechapel murderers, as he was officially called, but then uh, these facsimiles posted everywhere with the uh, envelope facsimile and everything. And therein was the bloody signature, Jack the Ripper. So that's how he got his his name. It fits perfectly what he did, but it uh, he's not someone who actually gave himself that name. Right, right. Um, and I, I got to ask you, uh, clarify it for me a little bit or enlighten me. How did you? This is, this is a little bit off the beaten path, but I was amazed at how well you knew the background of these uh, of the victims. Because uh, uh, you know, you you really paint a picture here. You're not just you, you don't just drop their name and say this. You you pretty much have a, a nice little thumbnail on their life story and how they ended up on, on the wrong end of the Ripper, if you will. So I mean, I, tell me how you found that, how you did that kind of research, and and uh, you know, enlighten me a little bit on that. Family and friends had to testify at the inquests and give a little background, and other uh, Ripperologists have come over the the decades and have found out a little bit more. There's obviously not a lot since they were 
basically, you know, vagabonds. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, no, the families had to come to the inquest, and the inquest proceedings were quoted verbatim in the, several of the major newspapers. And so that's how you find out where they lived, what Doss house, who they knew, what their uh, reason was for spiraling into uh, their lifestyle. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about the inquest, because that was another part of the uh, book that I thought was really interesting. It was like this twisted theater, especially, again, you paint the picture of some of these characters in the book. Wynn Baxter, uh, when he shows up again later in the book, uh, I think uh, after, let me see, well, he shows up again a couple of years later for, an, for one of the later cases they thought might have been the Ripper. You know, as I got deeper into the book, as I got to know this character so well, you know, he pops up again towards the end, and I was just like, oh, Wynn Baxter. What are you What are you doing back in this story? You're such a troublemaker. But I found the whole thing really interesting. Uh, was this like a – that's not something that happens nowadays. They don't have inquests like this in a public setting, do they? Was that oh, sort yes. Of, they do? Okay. Oh, yeah. You cannot have a private inquest, I think. Weird. Uh, but the newspapers simply today don't cover things as – especially if it's that lurid. But, yeah, you can go and sit in an inquest just like you can go and sit in a, uh, a court and listen to everybody arguing. Back then, though, this was phenomenal because of the, the mystery that was inherent in it. It was clearly this was something new. The Ripper is considered the first serial killer. And uh, so Wynn Baxter was from a newspaper family, and he had education in law, and he won the, the seat for coroner in this area. And thanks to him, thanks for all of his grandstanding, we have all this information. Either it would have been lost. Mm, mm, that's this, the point he you made. He made yeah. sure that these inquests were drug out for weeks. They were postponed and drug out for weeks. He conducted them like little mini trials. And had he not done that, we would not have 80% of the information we have today. Wow. Because that information was always implicitly promised to come in a trial when they had the, the suspect, but they never got him. So we never would have had the information. So if without Win Baxter, we would know nothing. Jack the Ripper would be a very uh, antiseptic case. It would be all urban legend without any chance of actually coming across and documenting, in some cases, exact movements that night of the victims and the scene and that the Ripper had a clerky type of voice and exactly what he looked like. All that is thanks to Win Baxter. Why is that the case? Wasn't there any sort of, like, paperwork on all this stuff? Didn't they have files on, on, on the cases as it was unfolding, or was it a different sort of era where they just didn't write this kind of thing down? Uh, it would, they did not have uh, – the inquest is, was responsible for some of that, but the trial is where all the details would have come out. Back then, police did not investigate like today. They didn't have the forensic technology. They, they would automatically, you know, look into the individual – the victim's life and try and find some connection there. Uh, but uh, thanks to Win Baxter, we have all the details of the crime scene. We even know how, you know, how the evisceration occurred. It was up to the papers, he said, not them. It was up to the papers whether they wish to report this, but he made sure everything came out uh. over weeks and weeks. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I was... I was uh, really blown away because it was like this twisted theater uh, that the press certainly seemed to enjoy as well. Um, let me see what oh else. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess talk a little bit about that because it's hard, I guess, also 
this is an all-encompassing thing. I mean, as you read the book, you, you really get brought back into this world, and uh, I want to sort of convey that for the listeners, too. Uh, you know, I guess just talk about the fear that was going on at the time and how many papers there were and just how extended. I mean, because you have, like, pictures in the book from some of these papers, and they're these just they look like comic books, kind of. Uh, they're really remarkable. Well, those are the Penny Illustrated mm, yeah. and the Police Gazette. Oh, the... They had all the illustrators going. I don't know how many papers were in London back then, but there were a lot more. I concentrated mostly on the East London papers because they, of course, had uh, a connection to the area more than the Stately Times in the West or the Observer. But there was the East London Advertiser, East London Observer, the Echo, the Times. The, te- the Daily Telegraph is what I believe gave us the most uh, details from the inquest. And so you can imagine a, a room, a, a dull uh, inquest room with uh, a placard on the wall with a biblical quote and the, the juror sitting there and uh, Wynne Baxter and all his Victorian glory and then all these newsmen and all these artists sketching everything. They were sketching every witness coming up. They were sketching the jury. They were sketching the doctors, all the all the, the whole scene. So they animated it for us in a sense as well. Hmm. But only the police gazette out of all that I have seen only the police gazette showed the Ripper once uh, the way he had actually been described. That's the, there's only one illustration I know of in which Jack the Ripper is wielding a knife and wearing a deerstalker hat. Every other time they just made him some low East East End lout. Um, and I want to circle back into the canonical five here on on uh, another point I wanted to ask you about and and uh, highlight, I guess you could say, and that is uh. On the night of the double event, two really interesting things that you point out in the book. Uh, in the first one, the Stride murder, the way that she was positioned so the blood ran like perfectly into a little gully of sorts, and it was just really amazingly uh, planned, or luck. I presume it was planning because uh, it was just perfect timing, if you will. Um, talk a little bit about that and, 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 and what you make of that, because this also had to be done in, in, in t- almost total darkness, if not total darkness, right? Yeah, well, yeah, it was pitch dark when uh, Morris Eagle, this was in the shadow, literally, of the Jewish Socialist Club. It was about uh, 12.40 a.m. when she must have been attacked, close to that, 12.35. Uh, so you're talking about pitch dark, nine-foot-wide entrance to the alleyway between the three-story Jewish Socialist Club and the two-story tailor shop. And so here they, the Ripper disappeared into this chasm of darkness with her, and that's where he cut her throat. It was not an area where couples hung out, so this, he had to have known it already and scouted the area for his own purpose. And it was so dark that at 1240, when one of the members of the club, Morris Eagle, walked around from the front door and walked into the backyard uh, through the gateway, he said it was so dark he could not swear that she was not there already. That is how pitch dark it was, and it's my contention that he's actually the one who interrupted the Ripper, because her throat had only been cut halfway through. The Ripper usually cut once across and then back again. But she was found perfectly positioned so that her neck was over the rut in the road, the little gutter. And from there, the blood could easily flow uh, 18 feet away to the drain by the back door. Mm. So he had to have known the location since couples did not frequent that area, as they put it. 
That is what how good his eyesight was. Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's it's almost supernatural in some ways. Some of the stuff this this guy was doing, and 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 the other part of the double event that I thought was interesting is uh, is the second half of it. It, it seems, and you point out in the book, it seems like like there was some kind of pressing need to commit the second murder. Something had to have precipitated that second event, second killing. And, and, you, and, you know, it seems likely maybe this kidney situation has something to do with it, but I'm not sure. But it certainly seems like uh, like there was some kind of pressing timetable of sorts uh, for, for the second, for, for something to be done that night. Yeah, for, it's like uh, not just a killing, but an organ had to be taken. Mm. It, it's hard to explain that. As I said, I believe with the first victim, that Polly Nichols will consider her the first victim, just to make it easy. Yeah. That uh, blood was taken. The mutilations in her lower abdomen can be a feint to draw a similarity to Tabram's death to cover that there was another motive here, because Tabram was mutilated in her lower abdomen. Uh, we know a uterus with navel attached was taken for Manny Chapman. A list ride, nothing was taken. It seems very definite that the Ripper was interrupted. And then that very night, Catherine Eddowes, an hour later, in a very inconvenient spot, Mitre Square, is uh, is mutilated pretty quickly, opened up. Her uterus is not taken so cleanly, didn't get all of it. But what is taken neatly is the kidney. And the this is now in the City of London. So the City of London doctor, Gordon Brown, thought there was anatomical knowledge, displayed here as well, despite how sloppy the job was, and then the facial mutilations afterward, because the kidney was taken neatly. The uterus wasn't, but the kidney uh, was taken very neatly, and it's usually overlooked, he said, because it's covered by a membrane. So he believed there was anatomical knowledge, and then in the case of Mary Kelly, which would be November 9, the heart was missing. Right. So there's, you know, we we still today think that Jack the Ripper was after uteri, and there's really no evidence the first victim that he even tried, the second, yes, the third, we don't know, but uh, in the fourth, uh, he might have taken the uterus as a feint to draw a connection to Win Baxter's very popular theory that he was a mad mortician going around for 20 pounds trying to collect these to give to some rich American, but he takes the kidney very neatly, and so what we have are different organs and then the heart finally being taken on November 9. So there really is no indication that the Ripper was after uh, the uterus all the time. Right. It was, it was. Nor is there any indication he was a sex killer. At the risk of getting too speculative, what do you think the motivation is for this string of, uh, you know, <laughs> stolen body parts and blood and whatnot? Oh, that's what I don't like to talk about. <laughs> well, one has to speculate. You know, the, the Victorians were certainly into the black arts. It was a new big thing. They were picking up an awful lot of stuff from India. And uh, the press even speculated this might be a mad Hindu, a mad Lascar, or a melee on the loose. Uh, was there some ulterior ritual that they had to be killed on certain days, or if not certain days, certain organs had to be fetched within a timely manner? For what, for what, uh, for what reason, I'm not really an expert in what Victorians considered the dark arts back then. Mm. But certainly this conjures up pictures of, uh, you know, I mean, what would you use a kidney for, a heart, 
the uterus with navel attached blood. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Uh, and then taking them in these compromising positions. Mary Kelly shows he could have killed them indoors. He could have killed them in parks where he didn't have to worry, but he got them dead center right on the street. So you're so you're suggesting that maybe the the location plays a role in in the in the overall act? Not less not necessarily the occult, like he's like some have said, he's trying to draw a, a picture, you know, connect the lines from each crime scene hmm. and come up with some some emblem, some symbol. But it was the East End that was necessary. It was necessary to leave them in a circumstance that made everybody wonder how this could have possibly done. As you said, the newspapers speculated. They talked to them almost in the sense of the supernatural. That's how these these killings occurred within minutes of cops coming and going of people, and there suddenly there's a body that's been eviscerated, and there's no noise, nothing, no clue. Well, there's lots of clues, but there's no... No clue that could ever be followed. Right, right. It's it, yeah. I think it, it it bears sort of uh, repeating in a sense here too that two things really struck me about these murder scenes is the the precise nature of this. He had to know because these these are like interlocking beats these cops are on. It, it, mm-hmm. it, he really had to time this uh, amazingly well. And people, I think, forget because we live in this modern time. But I presume. Really, at the time these murders were committed, like 3 a.m. or something like that, there was almost no ambient noise. Uh, no, not back then. Mm. Not back then at all. It would have been very quiet. So, I mean, that's the, that adds the layer to the mystery, because this guy is committing some really horrific crimes <laughs> in this tiny little window and in, in pitch darkness as well and uh, not creating a sound. It's it's yeah. stunning. very narrow streets as well. No echoes, nothing. No, part of me was kind of wondering. Uh, you didn't even get into this at all in the in the book, uh, as far as I can tell, unless you sort of hinted at something like this. But I don't think so. Part of me was sort of wondering: is it possible that the Ripper was somehow had inside knowledge of some kind? Uh, maybe he was somehow affiliated with the police, or or had some kind of uh, official capacity that he'd know. That he could stay a step ahead of what what they were doing. No, I don't think that would have helped uh, because they were completely bewildered. Uh, they weren't a step behind him at all. They were a step on every other side. Uh, despite the fact that Aberline, who was uh, set back from an administrative position, was put in charge of the case, and he knew every inch of Whitechapel. He had worked it for fourteen years, had all these contacts. They couldn't turn up anything. And uh, one newspaper got so upset in the op-ed about how all the other newspapers are talking about how this is almost supernatural. And then this paper decried that and said that it's the, the prostitutes had all the knowledge of these police beats. They're used to knowing when, you know, as soon as the Bobby on patrol, his footsteps fade away, they know how long it's going to be before he comes back around. Well... The evidence doesn't bear that out. Uh, Catherine Eddowes, who was killed in the city of London, didn't ply trade as a norm. Uh, she didn't know the uh, Watkins beat time in in Mitre Square. It was only 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes he came through Mitre Square. Uh, how would Polly Nichols? That was not the usual area for prostitutes off Bucks Row. She wouldn't know uh, the constable's, uh, John Neal's beat times. And if the Ripper's walking them to a place, how does he avoid 
Well, he's being seen by all these bobbies. No one ever saw a pair of people casually walking to these crime scenes. There is no evidence that any knowledge on the part of the prostitute would would have helped the Ripper at all because, you know, prostitutes didn't know when casual workers came along coming and going from work. There's the case of Francis Coles, which uh, one of the detectives considered to be the last, the actual last Ripper killing. And uh, she was found there in that tunnel in Swallow's Gardens just seconds after uh, one worker walked his horse through and a few seconds, you know, a minute or so, uh, when more workers passed by. And uh, only casual footsteps were heard by the police constable when he was approaching the tunnel. So that must have been the killer walking casually away into the night. So how would uh, how would the prostitute's knowledge help the Ripper to know police beats? He had to have known them himself. Hmm. He had to have gone to these areas. He had to have timed it. And he had to have known when he could strike and when he could get away. I don't even think uh, Scotland Yard upper echelons knew all the, the police beats. Yeah, yeah. It had, yeah, it probably was very sort of uh, personalized in a sense where how would you know what Randy's routine was in Sector G or something like that? It would be difficult to pin down. Yeah, it was only that it was generally from the smaller beats, 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes they passed a given location for the other ones every 30 minutes. But then something might happen, of course, to delay the Bobby or whatever. Well, it makes you wonder. Then we're getting we're we're getting into uh, additional sort of speculative area here. But uh, just thrilled to be able to talk to somebody about this case after reading the book. Um, it makes you wonder. Then if if it stands to reason that he planned these really amazingly, almost perfectly, it's remarkable to take another look at the double event and see that he managed to have two perfect scenarios come together in one night. That's that's one of the more uh, vexing parts of the, of the whole story, I think. Which would indicate he knew the locations already, mm. and he could. Uh, but he certainly hurried at Mitre Square. He had no choice. Catherine Eddowes was seen with a man just before it must have happened by a couple of witnesses walking casually along outside Mitre Square. So he must have walked her in there at well, what was it about one thirty-five, and then uh, at. 144, yeah, 144, 145, uh, the cop, Watkins, comes walking through on his beat, and there's her body ripped open. He said it looks like a maniac went at her. And the uh, the watchman of the of Curly and Tongue's warehouse had the door open partially to the warehouse, and he was sweeping it out, and he never heard a thing. Watkins had to go up to him and get his police whistle so he could go get more help. And he hadn't heard a thing, and here's this, you know, so in nine, ten minutes after she was seen walking in there with a man, oh, there she is, mutilated in a pool of blood. He had to have known the location because he escaped from a very narrow box-like square that had only three narrow entrances, and Watkins never heard, you know, shoes clacking away on the cobblestones in the night, so he never heard anybody running away. So what he did, he did in uh, five, six minutes. And just to just just to keep people up to speed here, in the in the five six minutes, also uh, remove the kidney. Yes, remove the uterus clumsily, remove the kidney. So he had cut the bowel and put it by her side. So he had ripped. Well, 
Without being too graphic. Mm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just speaking to the, to the. <laughs> You'd have to walk her in there, which would be casual. He couldn't rush her. Right. And then in the darkest corner where he did this, he had her lay down, and then from the way her hands were and her throat was cut, and the abrasions under her left ear, we know he used his left hand, grabbed her mouth. She didn't even know what happened. He cut her throat and then ripped her clothes apart. He never cut clothes. Mm. Never. Right. He ripped them apart. The buttons went flying hither, hither, and then he eviscerated her, took two organs, um, mutilated her face, and rushed off without leaving a half a shoe print in blood, a drop of blood. It was just around her in a pool coming from her neck. Yeah, I, I was marveling at the speed, really, to do all that. Uh, it's one thing to, to slice her throat and run away. It's another thing to perform rudimentary surgery in, in a tiny little... You know, obviously uh, unauthorized, gruesome, rudimentary surgery, but nonetheless, still, uh, you know. And in darkness. Yeah, yeah, and in total darkness. Basically, by Braille, he's feeling for the kidney, because you're not going to be able to see it. My goodness. So by Braille, he feels for it and takes it, and is gone without a sound, and no one sees anybody running, no one, there's no drop of blood, there's no trail. Mm. And only later in the, in Whitechapel, a few blocks away, do they find a piece of her bloody apron thrown down, and then the cop on the beat there, knowing that there's all this turmoil blocks away, shines his light around looking for a trail of blood, and that's when he finds the chalk writing on the door jam underneath it, over it, yeah, over the bloody apron. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And that was the new addition to the Ripper's crime spree right there. That is as explicit as it can get. There was no hint of anti-Semitism in Tabram's murder and Nichols' murder in Annie Chapman's murder. It's after her murder that Harry Dam, who was an American, we're responsible again, <laughs> was an American journalist uh, on the Star, came up with this whole lurid thing about a guy named Jack Pizer, this crazy Jew, he called him with wild eyes, who was known as Leather Apron, and he walked around in silent slippers at night, and he wielded a knife, and he's he's nuts. He's got this evil eye and this evil grin on his face the whole time. It was something out of Murders on the Rue Morgue, and this got the whole city upset that this crazy little uh, Jewish slipper maker was doing it, and that's what almost caused riots in the East End. They had to bring out more bobbies to control the crowds on Hanbury Street, where uh, Chapman was gutted. Because the, when the guys got off work, the English congregated here, the, and they were shouting at the Jews for this. No Englishman could have possibly done this. And that's what really upset the whole East End into near riot state, and that's what shocked Sir Charles Warren. That's why he wanted no social riots, no race riots, mm. nothing. And so here the next murder is Strides. That's at the end of the month. The double event is on September 30th. Chapman was killed on September 8th. So there was no killing until September 30th. And then Stride is murdered literally in the shadow of a Jewish socialist club. And Eddowes, after she's killed, this writing is written over her bloody apron, an assignation against the Jews. Now that is something so starkly different that it's clear the Ripper followed the news and he realized that he could cause upheaval if he wanted to. And here he suddenly adds anti-Semitism to what otherwise... I mean, it was just for that a murder spree of low-class drabs. Right. You, you, you make the point, too. It's interesting that a lot of the later suspects 
or I guess the suspects at the time, but it sort of comes out later, uh, were Jews. So a really, really religious yeah. undercurrent to all this, too, that's, that, that people don't know about. Yeah, that's, it's odd, too, that I can't imagine. You read any book before mine, I don't think it's ever been picked up, even though Robin Odell thought it was an Hasidic Jewish butcher. He's the first one to really bring that back up. This, back in the time in 1888-1889, when all the, the controversy and debate was going on, there were two extremes. Either this guy was a real low-class loser, or he was some high-end topper from the West End preying on the righteous sides of the poor. That's how the social issues of the time worked it all out. That kind of faded away and came back in the two respected post-war uh, biographies of this event were Autumn of Terror uh, by uh, Tom Cullen, American journalist, and then Robin O'Dell wrote Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction. And it's amazing and unintentional, but Tom Cullen took the view that this was a genteel person. He fingered Montague Druitt as being Jack the Ripper. Robin O'Dell fingered some low-class Polish Jewish uh, butcher. Uh. So the the two extremes remained with us and molded everything until today. That's still the extremes that most people have. Either it was a low-class Polish Jew or it was your high-end, you know, a gentleman doctor in a top hat. And yet I, I don't see how anybody could look at these the chronology of these murders and divorce them from all the newspaper reports, all the op-eds, all the complaining that was going on, all the manipulation, all the politics, mm. and not realize how the Ripper clearly dovetailed on the riots that nearly came to be because of this, his image of leather apron, this little demented Jewish cobbler, and how the Ripper then tried to incite more riots against against the Jews. Why would a Jew do that? How could they possibly think it was a low-class Jew, which some of the Robert Anderson believe that he was head of CID, a couple of others, and then the the those who were really on the street level uh, didn't know anything. They, you know, Aberdeen said we never had a clue as to who this was. Mm. The city of London was sure that they had uh, a butcher uh, from Butcher's Row. Robert Cigar was probably the real life Sherlock Holmes. He was the City of London detective, and he just said it was that their suspect was a man on Butcher's Row. Uh, City Detective Harry Cox wrote an article in 1906 saying how he was watching this guy, and he said it was a Jewish neighborhood. So, by effect, we can say that the suspect for the City of London was a Jewish butcher. And I don't know how well, how they could possibly think that, given the overall crime spree, how it developed. Yeah. It's... Yeah, well, I guess maybe cultural bias. <laughs> that might be the only... Uh, I, I really don't think so. I don't no. think they saw it. I, I think they were that wooden in their response that they just it got in their mind this was a maniac and that he could not be capable of subtler ulterior motives. Hmm. Well, it stands to reason. I guess maybe you can enlighten me to more to this. Uh would it have to have been some kind of someone with medical training to pull off these uh, these organ thefts, or would someone with rudimentary uh, butchery skills 
you know, be able to pull it off also? Or it seems like a very narrow pool of people, but maybe I'm wrong, uh, that will be able to do this sort of thing. Well, a butcher, uh, that was the debate. Some favored a butcher because he, he, you know, surgeons really aren't meant to hack you up. But a butcher would know how to do this and, and cut the throat like that. Uh, the, he had anatomical knowledge. That was not debated. But the level of surgical skill was. Baxter Phillips, who was the police surgeon, said in the Annie Chapman case there was surgical skill. It was neatly done. There was no, uh, there were no pointless cuts at all. And that then contrasts with the other murders in which certain mutilations were attempted. Mm whether there's a cover or not. I would say he had a certain level of surgical skill. When Baxter bleed, he was a mad mortician. Who They obviously know how to dissect. The papers wondered if it wasn't a mad vivisectionist on the loose who was trying to prove one of Darwin's theories. And so he chose, you know, lower forms of life to dissect. Uh, I would say that the Ripper, being described as not a laborer by one of the men who saw one of the victims with their with this unidentified man, that he probably did have some kind of, he was not a doctor, I don't think, but he had medical knowledge. Yeah, that was kind of the thought I had, too. This was sort of a time when people were very sort of amateur. <laughs> uh, you know, he could be a clerk, but he also could be sort of an amateur uh person with a hobby of human human body interest that, that kind of went off as rocker. Is that is that possible, you think? Well, it was a time in which being self-taught and being, uh, you know, having new ideas was appreciated. Hmm. But I think he might have, uh, I think, you know, you have to practice makes perfect, even for something as ghoulish as this. So he had, uh, I think he had actual medical training of some level, some mortician level. I think he knew things beyond even what a doctor knew. Because the doctors don't disarticulate bones or anything. Right. But I don't know how well he knew it. Uh, Baxter Phillips thought that the Ripper tried to remove Mary Kelly's head, and but couldn't do it. And so a medical doctor would really not even know how to do that. Uh, but a, a mortician or a butcher would know how to do that. So that kind of negates the Ripper being a butcher if he tried and couldn't do it. So maybe he was just a mortician. Maybe he did have a certain level of medical knowledge. But he I don't think he was just some low bum that went crazy to get revenge on women. And that's what some of the detectives believed. Hmm. No, it's simple, a simple explanation. It certainly seems like there was an agenda at work. I'm surprised they didn't really pick up on on, on that or maybe... I guess, I guess, I guess they didn't, right? Because we would know now, later, if... Uh... If you it, know, if it I, had been in, in discussion amongst the, you know, the detectives, hey, look at all this, how it keeps happening, he keeps taking an organ or something. No, yeah, no, they believe he was just a demented lowlife who was uh, a woman hater and wreaking revenge on women for having been wronged. That's, uh, Tom Cullen was the first to actually notice an underlying social pattern in 1965 when he came out with his book. He's considered the, the grandfather of ripperologists. And uh, he even noted that uh, he didn't bring up the anti-Jewish uh, change that occurred with the double event. But he did notice that uh, November 9 was the day of Mary Kelly's uh, butchery, and that would be the day of the Lord Mayor's parade. Hmm. And so he'd said if, you know, he wanted to, upheave, you know, cause upheaval in the government, he would strike on that day 
which is what he did uh, back then. He struck on the 9th, and then the women started, uh, the news went all over London just by word of mouth, and it caused a riot in the Lord Mayor's parade that this butcher could not be stopped. So there you have absolutely no uh, inkling of an ulterior motive outside of taking organs in the first three victims. Then you have anti-Semitism, attempted riots of anti-Semitism in the double event. And then when that failed, you have the Ripper striking on the 9th trying to cause upheaval of the local government during the Lord Mayor's Parade, which is a very solemn event in the city of London. So there was also maybe a second agenda is kind of what you're suggesting. That, that I think he evolved it. When he saw he could cause upheaval, he tried. Hmm. And it covered more and more what he was going to do anyway. He took a heart. There's no need to do that just to cause political upheaval. He immediately was, you know, he tried to, t he took the uterus from Annie Chapman. That was before any attempt at anti-Semitism or political upheaval. Right. His original motive appears to be mystery murders. And that seems to cover his other ulterior motive of taking either blood or certain organs from the victims. Now, what do you mean? To His goal was to kill in a way that would baffle people? Mm -hmm. As part of his own cover. And I think to... Uh, to keep them from noticing what you know that he was taking organs for some ulterior motive, I think he had some reason. He wasn't just a madman taking souvenirs. He was too cautious. And then he, when he saw he could create upheaval, he used that as a cover. Hmm. And so he tried to bring in race and politics, but he still took an organ, and he still he just didn't butcher and kill them. He was still fetching something that he wanted. Right, almost like he was thinking, if I can get them all wrapped up in this. Right, they won't even know where I'm going with this. Right, right, right. Because remember, if if he only did kill the five, the canonical five, stopping with Mary Kelly on November 9, 1888, he stopped suddenly. He took a heart, and that was the crescendo. Nothing else happened. And he fades away. The other murders we can attribute to copycats or whatever, if you wish. But if the consensus of... Most ripperologists are that he just killed those five. We have to try and explain why he suddenly stopped after his most gruesome butchery. Do you remember what we were? Do you remember the at the, Luton, at the Luton Palace? We were yes. talking about a rock musical based on the life of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, right. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. Saucy Now's Jack. the time to do you're that. You're a naughty one. Saucy Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. Right. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. To get into the speculative realm, we're getting further into sort of the idea of if this can ever really be solved, but the speculative part I wanted to ask you is why do you think he stopped? And I know you don't really know the answer to this, but <laughs> no, it's fun to talk about. <laughs> I would deduce from from the pattern that I I detail in the book uh, that he, if he did not do the other murders, then obviously the ritual that whatever he was doing this for was complete with the heart. 
uh, as such, it was over. He stopped. Mm. Uh, if he did do the other murders, then it, it really doesn't make sense that he, you can see how his crime spree gets more bold with each strike. He gets, he surrounds it with more mystery, more butchery. Then why would he go back and, uh, like Alice McKenzie was not, and she was killed in a very mysterious manner in a very crowded area of London, but the butchery wasn't there. Why would he retrogress? Right. If it is just a mad butcher, why did he stop? Because the the two favorite mad butchers that are on people's suspect list weren't incarcerated for quite a long time. They were still around. Aaron Kosminski is one. He was still around for a couple years. And so is another one who appears to be the City of London suspect. So in either case, why did the Ripper stop? No matter what you believe him to be, why did he stop? Because no suspect was incarcerated for years. Could it just be that the heat was so hot on this whole thing that he knew he had to stop doing it for a while? Could be, but then why does he retrogress with the next victim? Yeah. Yeah, because he didn't like take it. starting all over. Right, exactly. And not, and not proceeding any further either. No, you know, it's just to... these are... Random now. Right, right. They don't follow a pattern of increasing butchery of attempt to create any kind of upheaval. Mm, exactly, yeah. It doesn't seem to fit uh, this guy that we've come to know over the <laughs> over the course of the book. Now, running parallel to all the Jack the Ripper stuff is this whole thing with the torso killer. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really interesting. I've never heard of this whole story. And uh, what the hell was going on in England at this time, man? You, you don't just have Jack the Ripper, but you've got this other guy committing also equally, or well, maybe not equally, but certainly uh, parallel uh, gruesome murders. I'm, I'm stunned an oddball. by this. That's, he's quite an oddball. I'm surprised at how many people tell me I never knew that was going on at the same time. Well, that was a big deal. That was part of what created the whole autumn of terror in London for two years. Uh, this guy, uh, who is later known as the Torso Killer, uh, first appears in that uh, ghastly autumn of terror. October 2, was it, that they, October 3, October 2, they find the torso of a woman wrapped up neatly in the vaults below New Scotland Yard, the central police station headquarters that was under construction. And so somehow the assailant got in after working hours. The entire compound was surrounded by a fence seven feet high. So he got over that with his rotting torso wrapped up in brown paper. He got into the dark vaults where the workers kept all their tools until the place was finished, which was now the basement of New Scotland Yard. And in pitch darkness, he drops this ghoulish parcel off in the corner and gets out of there and is never seen, apparently. Uh, and when the detectives were, and the workers found this, and the detectives came to look at it, they had to be striking matches and carry a light just to see where they were down there. They cannot imagine how, one, anybody found this vault without knowing where it was, and two, how he could get down there in pitch darkness Apparently he would be striking matches, I guess, unless he just had that kind of night vision. And then got out of there. That's just, and was yeah. not, uh, except apparently someone says uh, a middle-class looking guy was seen getting over the hoarding, the fence. And he was about 35, the Ripper's suspected age, and he was, uh, you know, clerky, kind of dressed normal. He was, didn't look like a laborer. He had nothing in his hands, but he, he crawled over the fence and was seen walking casually away. 
And so that's interesting. If that was the torso killer, he certainly is very similar to the Ripper, another uh, butcher. The, both Baxter Phillips and one of the other police surgeons were sure that this guy was a butcher, the torso killer, because he disarticulated the limbs without scratching the joints at all, the bone joints. So he really knew his stuff. Yeah. And uh, Baxter Phillips said a doctor wouldn't even know how to do this. And so here we have two guys. The Ripper was suspected to be a butcher by City of London. The torso killer was suspected to be a butcher. They're both uh, middle-class, average-looking, clerkly guys, mid-30s. Except uh, the torso killer was far more ghoulish. He apparently was torturing his victims. The Ripper didn't do that. Like I told you, he was a humane butcher. He just killed them in parts. Yeah. yeah. But the torso killer left... Uh, fingerprints on the thigh of one victim, which can only be left during life. So he was torturing them. And uh, I go into detail. I don't need to get right. Right, 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 right. Um, you, you read it so you know how all the evidence points to how this guy, you know, stretched him out on a bed or something, something hard. Yeah. Was, their, their arms and legs and just was was a real fiend. This guy had, had to have a coach or something to trot these pieces all over London. Yeah. He wrapped yeah. them up. He threw them in the tins. He threw a limb over the wall of Sir Percy Shelley, his Chelsea estate. This was a West End killer. So he was in the West End first. And, of course, Sir Percy Shelley was Mary Shelley's son who wrote Frankenstein, mm. the monster brought to life by sewing together limbs from dead bodies. So we know this guy was trying to get attention for what he was doing. It's funny because he... <laughs> he he's been lost to the to the sands of time in in a big way. Uh, obviously, everybody knows who Jack the Ripper is. No one knows who the Torso Killer is. Uh, you know, as far as as, as <laughs> he dismembered he, he, them just like a butcher. What's Arms, that? legs. He dismembered them just like a butcher. Arms, legs, head. The head wasn't found. I think only once was a head found. But and I like you know the Ripper excelled in that he killed and mutilated in public, and that was the big mystery. The torso killer certainly must have taken them somewhere. He must have had a coach. He must have killed them somewhere quietly and dismembered them and then carefully parceled them up with paper or other clothes, tied them with string or broom string or shoestring, mm. and then trotted them about London and put them in very obvious places that indicated he was grandstanding, like the police department, basement, Sir Percy Shelley's, and then once in Whitechapel on the anniversary of... Uh, any Chapman's murder? It's you, well. You wonder. I take it based on what we've talked about that it doesn't seem like the Torso Killer and Jack the Ripper were one and the same. But you wonder if there was some kind of connection there. If there was, uh, it certainly seems like there was some kind of one-upsmanship involved between the two, but or, or inspiration or something. I don't know. But but I, I guess talk a little bit about what you think of all that. The the sort of relationship between the Torso Killer and Jack the Ripper and what they was were going certainly on? out to terrorize the public and grandstand in mystery, that's for sure. The thing is, the torso killer might be the same mad butcher of 1884 in Tottenham Court Road who did the same thing there. Uh, four years, five years before, they found the, what, the arm of a woman wrapped in parcel thrown over some fence at Bedford Square and then found her head somewhere else. And then before the police armory that has a guard constantly back and forth, except for when they switch guards for 15 minutes. That's when the torso of this victim was found right by the gate. 
So here is a disturbing foretaste of everything that was going to go on in 1888 and 1889, and this is 1884. So who is this? I mean, this is probably the same torso killer, but he certainly didn't do anything for four years, and then after Jack the Ripper creates such a furor, this guy comes back up and starts doing his thing again mm. in the Autumn of Terror, and then he continues on uh, summer of... 1889, the Thames mystery occurs in which he throws all the pieces in the Thames. And then another, the Pynchon Street torso in Whitechapel in which he puts the torso down somehow under one of the arches and there's no evidence of footprints or carriage wheels on the thin rock dust. Right. Let me jump in and ask you about that. Because I was looking at the picture of uh, the area and I was baffled by how he pulled this off. Do you have any theory on, on how he managed to get this bundle under an overpass? without leaving any trace of of the person delivering it? He must have walked extremely carefully not to leave shoe prints. Uh, the police officer even noticed it could not have been thrown because of all the dust. And had the package been thrown, the dust would have been raised up, and he checked it, and there was no dust on the parcel at all. Mm. So this isn't just another guy, or if it is the Ripper, having two different M.O.s, which is quite amazing. Uh, I really don't think it was the Ripper, but it's two guys who certainly had... A similar intention. They they killed prostitutes or homeless women and sought to make a great mystery out of it for London. And this is all Victorian London. This hits out of nowhere. Part of you just wonders if he got a couple of really twisted dudes sitting around trying to, you know, challenge each other or something. I don't know. You wonder if there was ever any any like deeper connection between these two. If they were if they were part of some larger uh, thing or something. Who knows. I wonder, because it is awfully coincidental, uh, you know, the stark difference between the torso killer's M.O. and the Ripper, <clears throat> but then these things are, these killings are, uh, you know, swapping out after the torso killer does uh, his Thames mystery in 1889, then, and then Alice McKenzie is found murdered in very disturbing fashion in July of 1889, uh, that it's just like the Ripper, except she was not extensively mutilated. But she's killed right under a lamppost, and there's no witnesses, and the, a cop was just sitting there ten minutes before or something. Yeah. And uh, Baxter Phillips uh, didn't really want to admit it, but he thought the Ripper was back. Uh, Dr. Bond thought the Ripper was back. Monroe, who was now head of Scotland Yard in Charles Warren's wake, uh, believed that the Ripper was back as well. But it didn't go anywhere from there. Next yeah. one. Is yet another. That's the Pynchon Street torso. That's the torso thrown on the under the overpass in Whitechapel. So the West End murderer went to the East End, and then they both fade away. Uh, there's never anybody caught for the torso killing. No knowledge of who Jack the Ripper was, and they disappeared a time and into urban legend. Mm. That's kind of torso killer disappears altogether. Yeah, yeah. That's the weird part. It seems. I found it interesting. You did a really amazing job. Uh, you, you take us through the entire story here, as we've done today, and then you spend an amazing amount of time in the book talking about Ripperology and sort of how this whole uh, study of the case has evolved over the years. And and just really, I, I was looking on uh, Wikipedia, says there's over 100 suspects and theories on this case now. It's oh, I would believe that. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to avoid all of that. I tried to go for the major stuff because I don't want to... Uh, knock anybody else. I don't like to do that. But right. some things you can't, 
you can't avoid some names if they're the exclusive progenitor of something that is simply so far out. Mm. Uh, but there's the suspects that have been offered, uh, you know, like Francis Tumblety. You know, this was a, an Irish-American who was over six feet tall. He was described as a giant. And someone like that is not going to fade in and fade out of Whitechapel. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people think this Irish-American quack doctor was responsible when he does not even fit uh, the, the description of the Ripper. Mm. But then you, you know, where have you heard that the Ripper wore a deerstalker hat? I'm the only one trying to get people to remember the original description. And, so and people lost what the Ripper looked like. They lost the whole image of this soft-spoken clerk who dressed in a long, dark coat and wore this this country gentleman's bird-watching hat. Right, exactly. Well, you do an amazing job of culling the information from these inquests, which, uh, as you point out in the book, that, that doesn't seem to happen as much. You, you get some of these other tales of Jack the Ripper, and people put out these theories, and and they're and they're built on skeletons that aren't actually, uh, you know, they're built on on a basis, a foundation that is actually urban legend or something like that. And when you go back to the inquest, it's like actually, no, it wasn't that way. It was this way, and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, that was my point of sticking with the inquest, was just to quietly kind of remove a lot of the poor suspects and the urban legend that's out there because there's no better way to do it than to show, one, how actually sensational this was, though it's been, you know, glossed over by those who had a pet suspect already and then they kind of just write a book based on tailoring everything to fit their suspect rather than actually establishing that the Ripper was a foreign foreign-looking man, but he was heard to speak, and he didn't speak like a foreigner. He didn't have an accent, so that tells you he was native-born British. Mm. And I think they would have recognized an American accent. They would have recognized a Polish or German accent, which was very common in that area. But the Ripper had a shabby, genteel manner to him, according to Elizabeth Long, who was the first witness we have that's reliable. She's the one who at 5.30 was on the way to the market. And... uh she saw Annie Chapman leaning against the shutter near 29 Hanbury Street, and the man she was talking to had his back to her. And so it's from her that we know that he said, will you? That's, you know, they were talking, but she only clearly heard he said, will you? She said yes. So basically she scored. <laughs> Elizabeth Long passes by, says it was a dark man, foreign-looking, about 5'7", a little bit taller than the victim. And that's when she says the dark felt stalker hat and the the coat. And so that's what the Ripper looks like. There's the Ripper. Right. And moments later, he he does in Annie Chapman. And then just before Stride was murdered, Constable Smith on Burner Street is walking along. He sees the couple on the other side of the club. He describes the man a bit younger. She, uh, Elizabeth Long, thought he was about 40. But... Uh, Constable Smith says he saw Stride. He saw the man with her. He was about 5'7", again, dark, wore a dark, long, dark coat, was about 28 years old. And once again, we get the description of this dark felt deerstalker hat. So it has to be the same guy. Now, just jumping back to the idea that they weren't even taking pictures of the crime scene, so they didn't put together all this information and... and plaster the area with sort of be on the lookout for this type of person, like, a, you know, like the old mugshot or uh, artist sketch 
situation? Is this before all that kind of uh, developed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just uh, plastered over the letters in hopes that someone could uh, recognize the handwriting. Weird. You'd think they'd be like, here's a description of what the guy looks like, so be on the lookout for him. Maybe they'd be able to find him that way. They were talking about descriptions, you know, of what he looked like, but there was no uh, no composite mm. that I've ever seen. Yeah. There's all these, you know, fancy illustrations in the the newspapers. Oh, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. Women were arming themselves uh, with guns and knives and everything secretly, just in case, you know. If, if you got too cozy with a woman, you could get in big trouble. Mm. Now, I wanted to revisit another event that happened during all this uh, that struck me. And I want your opinion if you think it was legit. I get the feeling you don't, but uh, I was wondering about the the. I'm gonna no pun intended. I'm gonna butcher the um the the recollection of the story, but I think it was the guy in charge of the Citizens Action Group received a package that had part of a kidney in it, and uh, then a, a witness came forward that described a guy looking for the guy's address to send it to him, and that guy acted really strange and weird. Do you think this was related to the Ripper story at all or just uh, sort of an outlier? It got so convoluted that it's hard to figure out. Uh, None of them were paying attention that were interviewed by the press to try and make this out. But it was George Lusk who was the president of the Vigilante Committee. Vigilance, I should say. And he got, uh, after the Eddowes murder, he got a parcel to his home and... And it was half a kidney. <clears throat> so he thought it was a prank at first, but he took it to the doctor. And one of the doctors said it was Ginny. So it was a kidney of a woman who drank and said it was human and it was the left one. And this another doctor said there's no way you can tell that. And so the doctors quite disagreed over whether this was a student hoax or if this was... Uh, this was the real thing. The, the letter was sent to Mr. Lusk. And it apparently was written by someone who had a bit of an accent in English because it, it wrote some things phonetically. Like Sir was S-O-R. Mm. How an Irishman would say Sore. And uh, then the lady in the shop had said that there was a man that came in because of the handbill on the door the day before and wanted to know uh about Lusk on the on the handbill where the address was, and she said, "Well, it's in the newspaper." She got it for him. She thought he was strange. He was tall, kept his head down, wearing dark clothes, and so uh, she read it out to him. And uh, she thought this was the guy that sent the parcel. Then he had an Irish accent, and the newspaper didn't print some part of Lusk's address and the package that he received, but the kidney was minus that part of the address as well. So it seems it probably was uh, some kind of, he believed it was a hoax anyway, and no one could figure out if this was really Edo's other, part of Edo's other kidney or not. The the crank letter with it said, I ate the other half of the kidney and so forth. And, you know, this is the from hell letter, I believe. Mm, yeah. Well, it's just odd. So you, so you don't, so, you, so it's too, it's too nebulous really to see if it can tie into it at all. Well, it depends on what doctor you want to listen to. Yeah. Gordon Brown said that uh, the kidney taken from Edo's had, must have had a large part of the renal artery with it because very short stub of it was left. And the kidney that was sent to Lusk had a large part of the renal artery or something. 
So he said it matched, and then another doctor said, you don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. That's the frustrating part. If this was like nowadays, they'd be able to tell you within a couple of days or a couple of hours or whatever, uh, you know, if it was the exact kidney or not. So it's just a Yeah, they could do the DNA testing. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's pretty stunning. Now I did I did tease uh just to, I did tease the swans and marginalia. Uh I did I did find it interesting you in the whole section on fool's cap, which is just sort of the idea of uh you you really go over sort of uh the the, the interviews and, and you know, after this has all died down 10, 15, 20 years later, some of these people who were involved start speaking out a little bit about what they thought was going on. But you make the point, and I think that this is the kind of area I'm honing in on here. You make the point that, you know, it's just their speculation. It's just their sort of notes and, and, and sort of mental notes about what all this is all about. So it's you can't really – other later people have ascribed too much to – the theories of the people that investigated it, because clearly they didn't know the solution to all this. No, they, the the main detectives in all this disagreed. Uh, they disagreed on the number of victims and who were the victims. Uh, there are those who don't even believe that Catherine Eddowes was actually the victim of the Ripper. They think just a uh, a clumsy imitator uh, killed her. Baxter Phillips was one of those, and so was Wynn Baxter. Huh. And then Thomas Arnold, who was head of CID and H Division, they thought that Eddowes herself was an imitation. Uh, but, yeah, years later, they started giving their opinions, and you realize to what extent they didn't know who this was. Uh, Aberlene, Detective Aberlene, who was the chief detective, was honest to say we didn't have a clue. Uh, that was after uh, Robert Anderson made such a big deal with his uh Articles and then with his book, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, saying that it was a low-class Polish Jew. And he was very dogmatic about that, that they knew who Jack the Ripper was the whole time. And because of lack of evidence, they could not get the guy. But uh, his family or friends would ever shoved him in the hatch. And so that's then the killing stopped. So he believed that the Ripper died in the lunatic asylum a short time after he was incarcerated. Then you had uh, Charles McNaughton, uh, who was uh, Melville McNaughton, rather, who was uh, not even on the force at the time, but came shortly afterward. He had a real bug about the Ripper. He's the one who wrote the famous memorandum. That was his own uh, conclusions uh, that he wrote up for the department that they were to take their briefing from this whenever asked about the case later. And he believed it was Montague John Druitt, who was one of the born with Druitts. He was the teacher who went, who went balmy. And, uh, but McNaughton had no real evidence either. Didn't even know he was a barrister, thought he was a doctor. And so all the disagreements, you realize to what extent they don't know, and yet books have been written on just, uh, one detective, uh, in a in a note to another one or a letter to a correspondent uh, mentioning a name of a suspect and entire books have been written about how this person was Jack the Ripper. Right, right. That's how Francis Tumblety comes into it. Uh, Inspector John Littlechild communicated back and forth and he mentioned there was no Dr. D uh, which is McNaughton's uh, suspect drew it. He thought he was a doctor but he said there was a, there was a Dr. T 
It sounds very much like D, and that was Francis Tumblety, and he was a suspect. And that's where we first hear in 1913, in this private letter that was later found, that one of the inspectors thought it was Francis Tumblety. Hmm. Entire books have been written about that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's uh, and, and then yeah. all this authority given to the Swanson marginalia where uh, Anderson suspect is named. Anderson, who, as I said, was head of CID, who caused all that enormous hullabaloo over the release of his book in 1910, saying that they knew exactly who Jack the River was. They they took the only person who ever witnessed him in the city of London, and they took him to a seaside home where he was, apparently, and they confronted him with the witness, and the witness said emphatically, that is Jack the Ripper. And But because the witness was a Jew as well, he refused to swear to it because he didn't want to be the cause of getting another Jew hung. But then, you know, the, the suspect was put into the Colney Hatch Sanitarium, yeah. from which we get the expression, the booby hatch. Yeah. And that's that settled the case as far as Anderson was concerned. Well, my gosh, London went... Berserk over his statement that they knew all the time it was a Jew and uh, he was fingered and uh, he was condemned for those comments. And uh, that all died down and disappeared until 19, uh, 1980s in which Swanson, Donald Swanson was an inspector. No one knew really was associated with the case, but he was a devoted friend of Robertson's. And uh, his grandson inherited his, his books after his daughter Alice died. So then the grandson, James Swanson, inherited in the 1980s and was going through the books and found The Lighter Side of My Official Life by Robert Anderson. He was Swanson was given a personal copy by his old mentor. And he would make margin notes over all the different topics that uh, Anderson talked about in his memoirs. Mm. And so when it came to Jack the Ripper, sure enough, Swanson makes notes in the margin about how all this went, that they took him to the seaside home and suspect did not wish to, uh, the, the, the witness, witness did not wish to uh, identify him formally because he didn't want to get him hung. And then he said, continued on the other page, and it goes through all this, and then at the very end it names the suspect, and it says Kosminski was the suspect. Right. And nobody knew who Kosminski was. Uh, he, Kosminski is number two in the McNaughton memorandum that got released. Uh, but, uh, the, I think Blotch had removed the cause. I think it was just Minsky or something. And so no one really knew, but no one cared. They wanted Drew it. They wanted the, the image of the, you know, the Simon Pure, the, the upper. Right. The upper class. But I think the point too that you make it, it you know, in the whole idea of, um, uh, fool's cap, Chapter is, is these people that they're saying were suspects, they don't pan out either. Uh, no, once don't. you look at them, they don't, Books. it doesn't add up. That yeah. they, these, these, so even the people who were the authorities on the case, even the people who were right there in the trenches, you know, years later they're saying, we were pretty sure it was this guy. And now even years beyond that, we can look back and say, no, actually you're wrong. It wasn't that guy. Yeah, no, Ripperologists really dug into this after that. Well, they wanted to know who Jack the Ripper was. Here was an inspector with the authority of Robert Anderson himself behind him, the head of the detective bureau, saying that it Kosminski. This was must be the little Polish Jew he was talking about. 
And so uh, ripperologists dug into this. Martin Fido was the first. Books have been written about this, but uh, it, Martin Fido discovered who this Kosminski was. It was Aaron Kosminski. He was this 23-year-old guy at the time. He was a demented Jewish hairdresser who ate food from the gutter. He wouldn't eat it if you handed it to him. He only did what an inner voice told him to do. And his family, he started going so berserk that in 18... Oh, 91, I think, February 1891, a couple of years after all the killings, his family finally has to cart him off uh, to the to the nut ward. Right. And that's where he remained until 1919 when he died. He was just completely gone, and that was Robert Anderson's suspect, and he doesn't fit any of the descriptions. How can this 23-year-old, this guy was actually born in Poland, he must have had an enormous accent because he was so young and hadn't been in the country I think 10 years, I can't remember when he came in. But how can this little demented Jewish hairdresser be the shabby, genteel, middle-aged ripper with the deerstalker hat and come and go so ghostly throughout Whitechapel? Yeah. It doesn't fit at all. And But then apparently, as I figure it, I think I can spot who is... Uh, is Robert Cigar and the City of London suspect. See, they were watching more than one guy over the Eddowes murder. Huh. And Robertson's suspect was associated with this because it's made very plain by Swanson that the Met, in other words, Scotland Yard, took the guy to be identified, but it was over the uh, London killing, the, the, the Eddowes killing. Right. Which was not their jurisdiction, but because this guy lived in Whitechapel, it was their jurisdiction to take him for this identification. But it was London CID's responsibility to watch this guy, even in the Mets territory, because that was the only murder they thought they could pin him for was the Eddowes murder. Hmm. That's their jurisdiction. And so we know from City of London that they did have a suspect, Harry Cox, uh, writes, he was an inspector, he had to trail this guy and watch him, and he was in Butcher's Row, and he wrote about this in 1906. He describes their suspect as, uh, along the lines of the Ripper, 5657 Dark, a butcher. He had access to several butcher shops in the East End. And uh, this is the guy they watched. And uh, then we know from Robert Cigar's uh, retirement that the newspapers reported that he also believed that this guy in Butcher's Row was the suspect. And he was carted off by his family as well because he just went too insane. And he died shortly afterward in in the, the lunatic asylum. And so after, in 1946, Reynolds posted, uh, published rather, some of Cigar's own unpublished memoirs in which he said this was the suspect in Butcher's Row, and they believed him to be Jack the Ripper, but they didn't have enough evidence. Well, this is obviously not Kosminski. But putting two and two together, Cox said this was a Jewish neighborhood, uh, Cigar never says the guy was Jewish, but that he was a butcher. It appears that uh, Robert Anderson got confused over some old grapevine discussion. Cigar must have said, you know, that guy that got hauled off that we suspected, well, he died. And Robert and Anderson must have believed that was that little fair-haired 23-year-old Kosminski. Huh. When, in fact, Cigar was talking about the guy that Cox in the city of London was watching in Butcher's Row, who was in his 30s, a dark, 
you know, had uh, much more. Uh, he was native-born, so he did not have an accent. He was native-born in England. The problem with that is that, uh, you know, the butcher that I think they're talking about, the only one who fits, is also Jewish, and that's Jacob Levy. I mentioned him. Uh-huh. He has been a suspect for some ripperologists. Uh, how does how could Jacob Levy, you know, try and start up uh, anti-Jewish riots as well? I would say that Levy is probably Cigar's suspect, but is he really the ripper? But he apparently is the one that City of London, that Harry Cox, and that uh, many of them believed was Jack the Ripper. And it was only Robert Anderson and Swanson who got confused and thought they were talking about this guy they probably watched for a short while, but then gave up and said, this guy's too crazy, he's too young, this is right, our right. guy. Yeah. But they never knew it. So this this marginalia is built, built up into this enormous confession that Kosminski is Jack the Ripper. But when Fido and others looked into all the lunacy records and finally found him, uh, it's, it, it can't be him. He doesn't even fit. He doesn't fit with what the city of London says. He doesn't fit with the man that was seen with the victims. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing that, as I said, uh, these, these mistakes of, of memory from some of these folks end up leading to, whole, I'm sure, whole, whole cottage industries within Ripperology. Um, yeah, it's amazing how Kosminski is so popular as a suspect, and he fits nothing. Hmm. It's uh, it's stunning. That's why it's what I really liked about your book. Uh, as you point, well, you don't point it out specifically, but I noticed when you're talking about people with with theories and stuff like that, it seems like every book that comes out is like Jack the Ripper solved, Jack the Ripper answer at last. I was I was, I was really uh, laughing at that and and thankful that your book is just a straightforward look at the case. Now, do you have any? Uh, pet theory about who this is? It's, it's, I guess. I guess that seems like such a such a ridiculous question because I, I I really I want to drape over that whole thing. The idea is, can we ever really figure this out at this point? Has it been so long that that we don't even know you know who was in the area at that time? We it could be someone who's never crossed the crossed the line of of recorded history almost. Uh, so no, that's we, that's the two extremes that I I have. If it is not Jacob Levy. If he is not Jack the Ripper, and uh, if he was just so crazy he tried anti-Semitic riots as well, I don't know. But if it's not Jacob Levy, then I think it's someone who was never even on the suspect list. It's someone who is that careful. Uh, he might have been a butcher. Maybe we're con- making a mistake and assuming that it's the Jewish butcher, Jacob Levy. Maybe it was a Gentile butcher around there. I don't know. But I don't uh, – like I say, I believe Levy was – Levy was the suspect for the city of London. Is he really the Ripper? If he isn't, all the evidence actually right now, I would say, favors Jacob Levy. But if he wasn't, then it's someone that we don't even have a clue on, but he would have to fit the pattern and the profile I point out from the crime scenes. And that's the only one way Jacob Levy doesn't fit is the anti-Semitism that was attempted by the Ripper. And that I just can't see a Jewish butcher, no matter how crazy, trying that. Right, right. But we do have in favor of Levy is the fact that one of the witnesses at uh, the three men that walked past and saw Eddowes with with a suspect, <laughs> he was very nervous, according to the press. He was considered very nervous at the inquest. He didn't want to talk. 
He said very little, and he wanted out of there in the papers, prepared us that this guy was very nervous, that he gave the appearance that he knew more and didn't want to talk. Well, this little person appears to be is uh, Joseph Hyam Levy. And it seems he is a cousin or some relative of Jacob Levy, and so that makes you wonder, uh, did he indeed recognize his cousin there? Hmm. Did he come to believe that his cousin or some relative or their butcher shops were very close? Joseph was a butcher as well. They were both on Middlesex Street there uh, near Mitre Square. So did he did he indeed recognize uh, Jacob Levy? Is he the unknown Jewish witness? That's the only thing that really favors Jacob Levy over everybody else in that he fits Harry Cox's suspect, he fits Robert Cigar's suspect, and Joseph Hyam Levy was really nervous about appearing at the inquest. Hmm. Interesting. So that, that's a, that seems like the strongest one, huh? Yes. Otherwise... <clears throat> other- all the evidence, yes, it does, because uh, uh, Jacob also was uh, shoved into the... A Stone Kent uh, at Stone Kent, uh, the nut house there, and Lady Anderson even remembers that the Ripper was shoved there. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing. But like you, I guess, what more can be done at this point? Look at look deeper into this guy and see if you can find anything else out, or is it just so far? I mean, are, are, is the mystery unsolvable? You know, from the due to the just sheer amount of time that's gone by, I guess is the question. I don't believe it's unsolvable because something might be turned up that would finger someone completely unknown. Uh, but I would like to look into Levy more to see if I cannot find a picture, which would be unlikely because Levy did die not long, about five, six, seven months after he was incarcerated, which again fits what they were saying, that the river died shortly afterward, whereas Kosminski lived on for, I don't know, over 20 years. Hmm. But it, even if I did find a picture of him, even if I could with the burden of moral evidence show that he was Jack the Ripper. Well, I could I probably with evidence show that he was Cigar's suspect. Right. But am I proving he's Jack the Ripper? Or am I simply, you know, verifying a yet another bogus suspect? What became of all the stuff from these murders? You know, the clothes, uh, all the physical evidence. Uh, was, was Discarded that? at the workhouse. What's that? Discarded at the workhouse. So they don't say they didn't save anything like uh no they had to, at the inquest uh they had to go back and try and find the clothes out in the pile in the yard oh, when, God. Uh, when 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 Baxter asked just what were the conditions of the stay the stays on Polly Nichols he found that amazing there was such little blood and the stays had not been removed so one of the detectives had to remember that uh, the clothes was out in a pile at the workhouse that's where the morgue quote unquote morgue was it was just a shack at a workhouse right. So none of this stuff ever got saved, I guess, the No, point. there's no evidence. Wouldn't that be nice if some of the clothes was saved or something? Mm. But uh, what they could get with DNA from the Ripper, I don't know. They could maybe get the DNA of the victims, but we know who they are. Right, right. Yeah, because I was sort of like flash-forwarding in my mind there to, again, I, 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 again uh, sometimes this case gets conflated with the Zodiac case, and you see all these sort of instances where they're trying to pull the DNA off the stamps and stuff like that. So you wonder if there's any... If there's anything that you could pull DNA from from this case, but it sounds like that's completely out of the question. Yeah, no, there's there's nothing that the Ripper left, not even a, a shoe print in blood. Nothing. He he 
in pitch darkness, he avoided every, every, there was no clue. He left no clue except how he killed and how he left no clue, which was an enormous clue. He was that careful. That just, uh, that's the puzzling part about it all. They, they tried everything. They tried to look into the eyes of the victims and take a picture, thinking that the theory that the, <laughs> the last, last thing, thing they saw is embedded there and they would get a picture of the Ripper. <laughs> oh, my God. Just an absolutely spellbinding story, John. Um, I just, uh, I'll be thinking about this case probably for the rest of my life after reading this book. Uh, now having learned so much about it, um, I gotta give you kudos. Is there anything more that we didn't cover in, in this conversation? We hit on almost every major, major facet of the book, I think. I think that people have to realize why with only five victims, uh, which is not a lot by serial killer standards today, unfortunately. They've, we've had guys that have killed 30 or more. Uh, the Ripper stands out, though, because not only was he technically the first, he did use killing as a game. This was, he had several ulterior motives, and he did intend these as mystery murders. From the very beginning, the, this was a gauntlet he threw down, and it covered successfully his identity. Obviously, he succeeded, mm. because no one is really sure if you can have a suspect list that runs the spectrum from low-class lout to a high-end topper, you know, doctor, there really was no evidence at the crime scene except how he mutilated, and even he altered that from pointless butchery to sleek dissection to mutilation, and they just, uh, he created uh, an open verdict. Yeah, it's it's amazing stuff. Uh, it's absolutely amazing stuff. Now, what do you have going on in the future? Because, as I said, I was completely blown away. I've been blown away by all your stuff, to be quite frank. Uh, the same tremendous attention to the historical detail that people can find in Scarlet Autumn, they can also find in They Flew Into Oblivion and Recasting Bigfoot. It really gives you, it really, it really cuts to the heart of the matter and sort of takes a fresh look at these at these mysteries, uh, and you've done it again here with Scarlet Autumn, but what are you planning for your next uh, adventure, let's say? Well, right now I'm finishing up on the disappearance of the USS Cyclops, which I think could be the American mutiny on the bounty. This is a ship that vanished in 1918 and had a real uh, bizarre voyage. Uh, there's hints of mutiny and treason. 309 men vanished, and the captain was... Uh, quite an eccentric, a brutal old bucko sailing captain. Uh, I'm also working on the Zodiac. That will be what, uh, and on Amelia Earhart. So those are my three major projects for a book right now. Okay. Amelia Earhart's disappearance, the exposing the truth about the Zodiac killer. Well, just, I don't want you to give away the book on that, but just tease me a little bit, Gian, because I'm, <laughs> Well, that's my I'm neighborhood here, so I could, I could go to every crime scene. I've put them back. I have a lot of pictures on my website right now just of all the crime scenes and the information. I know. I've been following your work here on the Zodiac stuff, so I'm thrilled that you're looking at it. Uh, I'm just, trying to. What's the expo <laughs> what are you going to expose, uh, if, you, if you don't mind me asking, because uh, I've looked at the case quite a bit. I'm interested. I would be naming a suspect. Okay, I so would you... actually have, it's not Lee Allen, yeah. but I have tracked someone else and uh, 
I just have to complete one bit of my investigation to really be certain it it's him. Okay. And that was his mistake at Lake Berryessa. There's a clue there that I followed, and I think I can actually. He was a suspect back then as well, so uh, two different lines have crossed here. Okay. And so that would uh, it would be uh, not just putting everything back accurately in that case, but actually, hopefully, getting the the right guy responsible. And have you named this? Because I'm because I'm going to get off the phone with you and just like dive into your website. Have you named this anywhere, or uh, is this still? Uh, I have a picture of him up, but I give him an alias right now. Okay. Interesting. See, I cannot wait for that because, uh, like I said, I've been captivated by the Zodiac case forever, and uh, and to see your critical eye turned on this thing, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited, man. I'm really excited. And 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 I guess what again? Give me a little tease here. What what can we expect from the Amelia Earhart research? Because that's another case that's been poured over endlessly. Um, do you think you've, you've found something that others maybe have can... missed? I think I can put it all back the way it was and get rid of the conspiracy of silence. As Lieutenant, uh, as Colonel uh, Paul Brion put it, he wrote uh, Daughter of the Sky in 1960, mm-hmm. which was considered her first true post-war biography. He was a colonel in the Air Force, and he really uh, was enamored of her. He wanted to put her legend down, and the, the nation was very receptive at the time. It had been 20 years, and people wondered what happened to her. And so that uh, that book happened right at the beginning of all the Earhart interest. And, of course, you know, you had Fred Gurner's book and all that about her going to Saipan. And Colonel Brion believed that, that she was executed on Saipan. But uh, he also noted to other investigators that a conspiracy of silence surrounds her closest friends like they knew something more. Hmm. And I believe I found out what that was all about. And it's pretty nasty. What, how it was used, but I can expose it as being false. But uh, someone used the idea of, uh, of a madman, an insane man trying to extort from her husband, and he claimed that they did, in fact, come across her and Noonan on a Gilbertese island. And uh, he said that he describes in detail what the natives did to her and all this nasty stuff obscene. Whew. <laughs> and he was just really nuts, but I think it was used very seriously uh, by her, and was believed by her closest circle of friends. They were all scared to want to talk about it, to destroy it, because they didn't want to destroy her reputation. And, and there is such a thing as the Morgenthau transcript, which has actually been recorded by Henry Morgenthau when he was talking on the phone. He was FDR's head of the Treasury. And he discussed some terrible event that they knew about. And he did not wish to talk about this publicly to Paul Mance or tell, he'd tell Eleanor in private. But he said if this got out in public, it would ruin Amelia Earhart's reputation. Oh, boy. And the Morgenthau transcript has been used by everybody every which way they wanted to to say that, oh, she was taken to Saipan. She was taken to the Marshalls. She was Tokyo Rose. She came back and assumed another identity. Whatever, but no, I think it's associated with uh, something a little darker, and it was completely false, and it really did not happen. There was nothing that could really tarnish her reputation, but it is believed today, I think by a lot of people, that there was something very dark in the end of Amelia Earhart, and that there was a conspiracy to keep it quiet. Interesting. And I can expose that. Wow. Because I got the indictment papers and everything. Sounds tremendous. I'm looking forward to... uh... When, any timetable on these books? 
I don't know. I'm going to be giving uh, the Cyclops book to an agent in uh, less than two months. And then uh, the Earhart book and the Zodiac book are being worked on at the same time, so I really can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> I'm a fan, John. I want that. I want oh, my these. only one. You're my only one. No, no, don't say that. The listeners, uh, I'm sure I've heard from them since the previous conversations. They're, they're fans, too. And uh, I want to get the word about this book to folks again. I, the, BOA Audio listeners, they're the readers, uh, you know, of the of the Paranormal Radio set. So I want them to go out and pick up this book because, as I said before, we it sounds like we just detailed this tremendously, and we did, folks. We we covered this in tremendous detail uh, in this conversation, but we only scratched the surface of what you can find in Scarlet Autumn, the crimes and seasons of Jack the Ripper. As I said at the very beginning of this conversation, Gian, this really is a tour de force. It, it is tremendous. Um, kudos to you, man. If I, if I if I could write a book like that, I'd be tremendously proud of myself. It's just uh, absolutely amazing. And the BOE Audio listeners have got to go out and pick it up, folks. This one is one of the cream of the very crop. So please do go out and pick it up. And Gian, the shabby genteel of the paranormal, as I may start calling you. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I'll put that on my website with Real Life Kolchak. <laughs> there you go. I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll say this, too. Uh, definitely one of the most underappreciated folks in the uh, in this whole realm of esoteric. You're doing yeoman's work and tremendous work. And it, 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 if I'm your only fan, that's complete BS, man, because more <laughs> more people need to know about your stuff. It's, it's outstanding. And so, folks, go out and pick up Scarlet Autumn, and as soon as Gian's got a new book out, he'll be back on BOA Audio, I can assure you because his stuff is uh, top-notch. And thank you, sir, once again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 8. Big, big thanks to Gian Kassar for coming back on the show and providing so much enlightening information. You can find out more from Gian at the website www.bermuda-triangle.org. Pretty simple, but just don't forget the hyphen Bermuda hyphen triangle.org. Check it out. And beyond that, my friends, do yourself a favor and go out and pick up Scarlet Autumn, The Crimes and Seasons of Jack the Ripper. It is outstanding. Trust me, folks, you will not be disappointed with this book. It is tremendous stuff from Gian Kassar. And while you're at it, pick up his other books, Recasting Bigfoot, that is, of course, regarding the Bigfoot legend, and they flew into oblivion, which is the definitive work on the Bermuda Triangle. Both tremendous books as well, and definitely necessary books for any serious student of the esoteric. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. It has been way too long since we did BOA Audio Listener Feedback. I feel like I've kind of lost the plot on this, but I've got a bunch of emails here, so let's dive on in and we'll cover a variety of emails that have come across my desk over the last couple of months since we did listener feedback. First email here comes from Joel. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I wanted to let you know that you have a broken link on your link page. The link to the page is to ufoevolution.com, which is sadly no more. I own and operate Alien UFO Research, and was hoping that when you find the time to update the page, you would consider adding my link there. 
I've been writing about aliens and UFOs around the world since late 2007, and I love it and the paranormal. I try to update with interesting things that are going on in the UFO community and have a pretty large user-submitted section, as well as tons of government documents that reference UFOs. Thanks so much for your time, Joel. Thank you, Joel, for writing in. First of all, thank you for finding the broken link. I will turn to the guts of BOA sometime soon and take out UFOevolution.com, and I will add in your website. However, Joel, you didn't give me a URL, man. How am I supposed to find alien UFO research? Luckily for you, I punched it into Google, and it came up right away. So I will switch out the links and add Alien UFO Research to our link page. For folks who want to check it out, I'll throw the plug in here for Joel, since he was kind enough to find the broken link at BOA. The URL for Joel's website is alien-ufo-research.com. A lot of hyphens going on here on the show tonight with URLs, but nonetheless, it's alien-ufo-research.com. Haven't had a chance really to take a look at it much, but it looks nice. And as I said, since Joel found the mistake at BOA, we'll include the plug here for his website. Thank you for writing in, Joel. Next email comes from Kev in the UK. Just finished listening to the Stanton Friedman episode and thought it was great. I also thought the Elvis episode was also very good. I had heard about the Elvis is still alive conspiracy, but never knew there was so much hard evidence to back it up. Very compelling stuff. I think I've been listening to BOA audio since the start, and it just gets better every year. I love the live shows, although I can only listen to them offline, and they make for great listening and have a different feel to the recorded shows. It's all great. I have an idea I thought I'd throw your way. How about asking each guest this following question. If there is one question you could get the definitive answer to, what would it be? I thought it might be fun to hear what each guest would have to say, and if there is a burning issue they want resolved in their chosen field of esoterica. Also, on a technical note, I don't know if this is specifically down to me or if others have similar issues, but the BOA full-length MP3 downloads often seem very distorted and or corrupted when listened to. The shows that are split in two are always fine for me. I thought this might be an upload issue if others have the same problems. Kev in the UK. Thank you for writing in, Kev. First of all, let me deal with the technical issue to start. You are the only person to report this to me. I know the sound on the program is kind of raw, and that's the way the show's been since our inception. We run on a very ludidic technological base here at Benal of America. But I've never heard anyone say that there's a difference between the full-length MP3s and the half-show MP3s. So I'm going to assume that it has something to do with how you're getting the program. So I will write to you later and see if we can figure out a solution to that issue. Regarding the Elvis episode, I was absolutely thrilled that we got such good feedback to that. I was mildly concerned going into that show that we were going to get slammed by people for covering what looks on the surface to be kind of a silly topic. But thankfully, the 
feedback to the show was overwhelmingly positive. I suppose the people who thought it was trash just didn't even listen and didn't even respond, and the folks who enjoyed it wrote to us, but it was overwhelmingly positive, so I really appreciate that, and big kudos and thanks to the VOA Audio listeners who get it, who understand what this is all about, and who enjoy a good conspiracy theory, no matter what it revolves around. You guys are the best. And finally here, I really do like this question you propose, Kev. Is there one question you can get the definitive answer to, what would it be? I will try and work this into the BOA mix as I go forward. That might be something that could be good for a text article of some kind at Banal of America, only because I'm always really scatterbrained when we get started on the show, and there's a good chance that I'll keep forgetting to ask that question over and over and over again until somebody brings it up and reminds me. So maybe that's something I could weave into a text-based piece at Banal of America. But I really do appreciate it. That's a very thoughtful question. And I almost forgot to mention this. Thank you for your kind words about the live shows. It's very uh, odd in a sense. I don't get the chance really to speak out to the BOA Audio listeners on the live shows as I do here on these pre-taped episodes. I'm enjoying doing the live shows. It's a work in progress, definitely. It's a learning experience for me as we go forward with the live shows, but I'm getting more and more comfortable with them. I haven't got any negative feedback as to the difference between the live shows and the recorded shows, but I did hear from one listener who suggested that the pace is a little different on the live shows, that it's a little bit more fast-paced, like I'm trying to move the show along or keep it rolling along, and that the tape shows have a little bit more relaxed pace. I kind of understand that. I get a a feeling of what this person was talking about, but I'm always interested in hearing from the BOA audio listeners who do listen to the program, the live shows, especially if they can tell any difference or if they have any preference between live versus recorded. What I do love about the live shows is the turnaround time on the programs is so fast. Usually about two hours we can get the show up at Banal of America for folks to listen to. And with the tape programs, we're talking maybe two weeks at the earliest to get the shows out to people. So there is quite a lag between tape shows and live shows. But aside from that, honestly, when I do these live shows several times after I'm done with the live show, unless there's some kind of catastrophic technical issue, I very rarely even feel like there's much of a difference between the live show and the recorded show. I haven't really changed my style purposely doing the live shows, and it seems like people haven't noticed any tremendous difference either. So I think that covers all of Kev's points. Thank you for writing in, Kev. Much appreciated. Love the international listeners. Hope all is well over in the UK. Next email comes from Lawrence. And that came to the Banal of America Facebook page. He has two show ideas. Here they are. One, get someone on to talk about the craziness in the world of skeptics. And two, satanic ritual abuse, SRA. He says, this one has been discredited as having no evidence, but it somehow overlaps with alien abductions. And I've never seen anyone look at it from both angles. Sorry, but I don't know who the guests would be. Lawrence. I'm not sure who the guests would be either, Lawrence, but 
I've been looking at the topics. He sent this to me a while ago. Uh, they're definitely in sort of the to-be-investigated bin, which is growing by the weeks and months here at Banal of America. Definitely two topics that I want to dig into in the future on Banal of America, but i got to find the right guest. So if anyone can suggest a guest specifically for satanic ritual abuse, I would definitely like to find out more about that. I have a pretty good idea of who I might want to talk to regarding the craziness in the world of skeptics, but I have a feeling it would be more difficult to get somebody on the record talking about that because it was a lot of inside baseball stuff and a lot of accusations that tread close to, you know, tricky legal territory. And I'm not sure if we could get somebody to go on the record to talk about that stuff on Banal of America, but I'm more than happy to look into it. Aside from the topics that Lawrence suggests here, I've got a few interesting genres that the visitors at the Banal of America forum have asked me to look at. Maybe I'll put the call out to the BOA audio listeners now to suggest some guests for these topics. We've never done episodes on crop circles. We've never done a dowsing episode. And we've never done astrology on BOA audio. The final one there, I'm not sure if I even want to do an astrology guest, but if we found somebody that was good, I'd be happy to give the topic its fair shake on the program. So if anyone can suggest a good crop circle dowsing or astrology guest, I'd be more than happy to look into their stuff and see if they'd be available for Banal of America, because those are some big topics we've never covered on the show, and part of my overarching goal of Banal of America in the big picture is to ultimately make sure that we've covered everything under the sun in the world of the paranormal, and as I said, crop circles, a massive one, that we still have not done on the show. But it's a very tricky subject. There's a lot of people on various sides of the issue, and then it gets lumped in with a lot of woo-woo stuff as well. So it's difficult to find someone who can bring the best stuff to the table. But as I said, I'm turning to the BOA Audio listeners here and asking them if they have suggestions regarding those topics. That pretty much concludes BOA Audio Listener Feedback here on this edition of the program. We've got a slew of taped episodes coming at you over the course of the rest of the winter and spring, so hopefully this segment will be making kind of a comeback as we go forward into the rest of 2014. Before I give you the means to contact me, I want to throw one more plug in, and that is from our friends at Off The Loop. You may recall those are the guys who made that really delightful end cap music that we use at the end of the program. I've got mixed responses to that music that we close the show with. Some folks think it's just absolutely awesome, and other folks just find it really unsettling. And I like that in a good way. So I like the song a lot. That's why we've used it to close out the program. I think it's awesome, and it makes me chuckle every time I hear it, and I'm happy to make it a part of the BOA canon. And with that said, the folks at offtheloop.com who made the music, they have a nice little write-up about Banal of America at offtheloop.com. So just head on over there. It's titled Esoterica from America, 
and it is all about BOA. So thanks to my friends at Off The Loop for penning that little write-up about Banal of America. And while we're on the topic of music and thanks, let me throw a fresh thanks in to Pete Diggins of the Orophonic Workshop, who provides the theme music traditionally here for Banal of America and BOA Live. You can find out more from Pete at orophonic.com, and you spell that A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C dot com. And as you may have noticed, we went really old school with this edition of the program since it was the chilling topic of Jack the Ripper. We went with the scary theme music that was created by our friend Ian. So big thanks to him as well. It's been way too long since I thanked those two guys for their long-standing contribution to Banal of America in the form of our various theme songs. And with all that said, now let me give you the means to contact me if you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. First of all, you can write to Benal at BenalofAmerica.com. You spell that B-I-N-N-A-L-L at BenalofAmerica.com. Finally got around to putting that email address together. If you don't want to do all that, you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That'll also go to me as well. Beyond that, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground, lots of discussion on the esoteric and pop culture be sure to check it out and join in on the fun. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, and that'll bring up my profiles on those social network sites. And finally, check out Benal of America on Facebook. That's where you can get the latest updates from the in-house section of BOA, previews of the upcoming episodes, the latest news, on when the next live edition of BOA Audio will air. Just punch in Banal of America on Facebook and like us. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. We got new pieces up at Banal of America from Regan Lee and Bruce Pretty, and hopefully some more stuff coming from the BOA staff in the not-too-distant future. Check it all out at banalofamerica.com. And now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. What you just heard was a two-hour conversation with the incomparable Gian Kassar with no commercial interruptions and provided to you absolutely free. How do we do that? We do that via donations from the BOA listeners. There are two ways you can help us out. 
head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. If you don't trust the internet, though, you can make a donation via snail mail. Simply write to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And you can find the complete address at Benal of America right next to the PayPal button. If you do mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank is anal and they will not cash those checks. And please include some means of correspondence so I can write back to you and thank you for your donation. As always, my friends, it bears repeating, no donation is too small and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we will check off our final annual celebration, which really should have taken place back in January, but our schedules were both very packed and things kind of ran amok. I'm talking about the annual Return to BOA Audio from our good friend Adam Davies. He's coming back on the show to talk about his search for the Orang Pendek, as well as his recent interest in the American Bigfoot. Always a fun conversation with Adam Davies. And this time around, my friends, it is going to be live. Thursday, February 27th. And I can tell you, in light of the international difference between where I am here in Boston and where Adam is in Manchester, UK. It'll be taking place in the afternoon. I will have the precise time available for folks at Benal of America and at BOA on Facebook very, very shortly. But as I said, likely we'll be going live sometime in the afternoon here in Boston. So probably around 3 p.m. Eastern time will be when we'll go live. Two hours live with Adam Davies. Always a fun conversation like sitting down at the bar with an old friend. This time around, of course, talking about cryptids and creatures with the extreme explorer Adam Davies. Really looking forward to getting him back on the program for some laughs and some enlightening conversation. That's on the next edition of BOA Audio and hopefully we'll be sticking to our weekly plan going forward here in the winter and spring. And with all that said, we close the book on this edition of the program. Thank you once again to Gian Kassar for coming back on the show. Check out Scarlet Autumn, my friends. You will not be disappointed. And thank you to Joel, Kev, Lawrence, and our friends at Off The Loop for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, finally, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the ones who have been with us from the very beginning, and the listeners who are a little more recent, but are hardcore BOA supporters as well. You are the fuel that drives the mothership of paranormal entertainment that is BOA. Thank you. 
for your enduring support of this program and the VOA franchise. And, of course, thank you once again for making VOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing.